Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Ready? Ready. All right. Welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. And before we get into it with my buddy, Tony Iazzi, my buddy, business partner, and longtime friend, I got to talk to you about a few things. What are you going to put on your handles? What are you going to put on your wood? What are you going to put on your steel, your Damascus, your axes, your hammers? You need something good that you can seal your product with, that you can have faith in, and maybe be a little food safe. I would suggest using Axe Wax. Axe Wax is an all-natural food safe wax for your axe, your hammers, or your wood, or your steel, or whatever. It's great. It doesn't have any petroleum byproducts. and put anything icky on your stuff, especially if you're doing culinary knives. Isn't it nice to have something that you don't have to worry about? Go to axewax.us. Put in promo code FULLBLAST10. You will get 10% off your order. Go get yourself a couple bucks of Axe Wax. You won't regret it. Next. Listen, I'm proud of you. I know you hate your job. I know you want to start something new. And I know you just found a new hobby. You found a new hobby and you, you went to a class, maybe you watched a YouTube video, you found something that you like to do and you're enjoying it. But then all of a sudden somebody wants to buy it. You want to make a little bit of money. You're going to need to figure out a way to send them the stuff and make a little bit of money. You need a website. Go to akinteractive.com slash full blast and Andreas Kalani will tailor a website for your needs and he'll scale it up. If you want, he'll make it nice. Or if you already have a website and you're just like, I don't need help with my website, but it looks like it doesn't look as good as it could. Well, Andreas Kalani will consult with you. He'll fix the graphics. He'll tell you how to get this done, that done. He'll make, he'll make your website better for you. And if you go to akinteractive.com slash full blast, fill out the paperwork, you get a hold of you, and he'll fix it up for you. Fix your website up for you, or he'll make you a new one. Or if you want to do a, a, a convention, let's say you want to do a convention for the first time and you get a, you get a, one of those tables. Wouldn't it be nice to have nice tabletop stuff? Or wouldn't it be nice to have maybe some signage? He can do that too. He can do logo design, marketing, whatever you need to get you squared away for to turn your hobby into that beautiful new career or make a couple extra bucks or get away from the people that you don't like. That's what I would say. So go to akinteractive.com, get yourself squared away with Andreas Kalani. Thank you very much, AK Interactive and Andreas Kalani and Axwax. <sighs> well, finally, finally, after all these times i finally have gotten one of my favorite people on this planet tony iazzi is an extraordinary friend i've known him for a long time he's an accomplished chef he's an entrepreneur he's a business person he's also my business partner here at fader knives he's up on thursdays thursdays with tony and he's here on the podcast tony how are you thank you for having me 
I've been waiting for this time. We've been trying to do this. I've been on your podcast over seasoned. Hopefully, over season comes back. But I'm grateful that you're here. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. Over season, it'd be nice to get it back. It's it's been a weird time in the restaurant yeah. industry to like celebrate restaurants. You know, well, over season was an is. To this day, you can still get Overseasoned. It's on the, I don't know if it's still on the Maker Network or it is definitely online. Somewhere out there. Overseasoned is a great podcast with you and your other business partner, X, mm-hmm. Xavier. How do you pronounce his last name? Mers Curator. It's a long one. Yeah, it's long. X is the man, but you guys, you guys did this podcast about the restaurant business, and I found it, it was always very good. You guys had great chemistry. I was always very jealous of your chemistry, to be honest with you. But we can do an episode of Overseas here on Full Blast and talk about the restaurant industry. But before we do that, let's just get a little bit of who is Tony? Who is Tony? Uh, that, that's my, that's what I, the well, rest, I mean, that's where I start. I, well, I kind of did, I didn't, I, that was a clumsy way, to, <laughs> that was a clumsy way to kind of do it. So, Tony's from, I've never met anyone actually from Reno. Reno, Nevada. What was it like growing up in Reno, Nevada? I don't know, you know, where you grow up, you don't really think it's different than anywhere else, you know? Until I do. you go somewhere, somewhere different. Well, you grew up in Manhattan. I, there, you, will, you will rarely find a person who's naturally born in Manhattan. You rarely find That's true. Rarely. It's weird. That's true. And well, so we're similar in that way. We are similar in that way. But people in Reno just don't venture out into the world. Where I think that people, in, where do the people that are born in Manhattan go? I, you're, you make a very good point. Do they just I think they go to California. Oh, they move to Florida eventually. They, or they move to California and they bitch about the fact that you can't get the stuff from New York <laughs> even though they just left. Well, Manhattan is different too. It's Manhattan, Manhattan, not like Queens, right. not the boroughs, right? The right. borough of Manhattan. Right. It's odd to find. But my son was born in Manhattan. That's crazy. That's right. Oh, wow. I didn't really that's think right. about that. I didn't really You're, put that together. That's right. Well, here you are. Wow. So I just popped him out and never went back. <laughs> he never went back. He's he's gone once. Well, my kid's from Yonkers then because she was born in Yonkers. So I guess how did you? Because you know you're when I first met you, you were the sous chef at Oriole, which is can still considered well not anymore, but it, because it's not it, it's kind of out. It's done after the pandemic. Charlie Palmer closed it down, but at the time, Oriole was considered one of the great restaurants of New York. How did you kind of, what made you want to go into cooking? Well, it was, when I was younger, it was just one of those things that it, it seemed to be the only thing that I was drawn to. Why? I don't know. I'm a natural. <laughs> what do you mean? Were you, was it just because you were hungry? or were, No, I just really enjoyed, even, I, I liked eating, but also I just really enjoyed the act of cooking. Even yeah. back then, I was, you know, I'd watch TV shows about cooking. I would just seem to be drawn to it over anything else. Hmm. Like I wasn't into cars. I wasn't into whatever else, you know, I was into cooking. That it, it's interesting how people, that, where interests lie at a young age. Because I was never into cars either. Mm-hmm. Like I had Matchbox cars and that was my interest in cars. Like right. I have no, but I, there is something about cooking in general, especially at a young age, that where you see, you see nurturing firsthand. Because you're unable to, you're unable to feed yourself as a child, so you're being presented with food at a very young age. You know, your parents are making you food, your mother's feeding you, or you're you're, you're constantly getting plates put in front of you. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you're like a baby, you're not you're being served. You're being served up to a certain age. True. So I would imagine with some people that sense of that sense of nurturing sticks with them 
at yeah, a young it could age. be a, it could be that or a, a collection of things. Like, is it nurturing or is it just it's like a formulaic type of thing in yeah. my brain sometimes? Yeah. Like how you lay out a, me. It's it, it, you're thinking about doing things in a certain order in a certain time with with the end result being um, this meal. Right. right. Well, of course. I mean, that's 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 the excellence of I it. I think that there's a nurturing aspect of it, but that that's that's more about you don't have to go into the restaurant business right. and want to nurture through food. Right. Like you, you really, you, that's where it kind of ends. I like to think that with makers, especially that when you have, I I'm focused on discipline. Like I really try to be disciplined and I feel like I've said to before that I feel like cooking and making things are the same because it's taking ingredients and technique and giving it to someone. I almost feel as though what you were saying before is that with cooking, it's like, you're seeing real time, your real time satisfaction of you being able to dis being disciplined enough to prepare something that tastes good for and somebody else likes it. There is some sort of internal satisfaction you get from making it great. Mm -hmm. You know, if you ever make something really good for yourself, it's almost like if the tree falls and doesn't even want to hear it. I don't even really. I mean, I still will eat. Out of, out of like a quart container over the sink. If yeah. I'm alone, I'm not really doing that for myself at all. So what was the first restaurant you worked at in Reno? The Submarine Sandwich called, Place, right? Uh, yeah, I did work at uh, Port of Subs was my first restaurant, I guess, job. Job working with food. I think I was 15 years old. What did you? What were they known remember for? Remember making 3.50 an hour? Um, 3.50 an hour? 3.50 an That's hour. That's a bargain in the yeah. restaurant business. Um, uh, submarine sandwiches. Well, submarine what was the top, what was the most famous? Submarine? You know, the number one has like salami, prosciutto. You know, kind of. Yeah, yeah. They're all basically the same kind yeah. of thing. Um, but it was a little chain thing, mostly based on the West Coast. Then I got a job at a place called Cafe Soleil, which was in an office building initially, and we had two hot plates and a, and a steam table. Ah, no, no. Ah, I know that move. That's the getting and, away from the health department move. Well, it was it was supposed to be a lunch counter for this office yeah. building, like really simple salads and sandwiches, whatever. But um, the couple who took it over was a chef and he started to build this following that was much more uh, cuisine focused. Right. right. So I don't even think the building really liked us opening for dinner, but huh. we did. He'd, he'd been there for years. But so we I mean, we do these. Um, Pretty intricate dishes for that kind of equipment, right? Did you a microwave, uh, I think, of two steam tables with three bays in it each, and two hot plates. Did you enjoy it? Yeah, I loved it. What I part it. did you like? It was like two. It was me and a, the chef, right? Yeah. Not the owner chef, but like the chef, the right. sous chef, whatever. And like somebody working salads. That's all it was. It was like a team of three did everything. It was pretty amazing. It is, it is almost like an underdog situation. Like you feel like you're almost, a, I mean, obviously you don't want to think of yourself behind the eight ball, but I mean, you're the small group is kind of delivering to a group of people. It is, there is something to be like. It was fun. It was popular. Yeah. We did a good job, you know, and then that moved to a larger location eventually. And I went with them to, uh, they kind of blew the, blew the doors off. They had like a pizza oven and yeah. a wood fire grill and they kind of went uh, whole hog with it after that. So... At what point, what point do you think I need to like go to school for this? I, I, I think early in high school, I wanted to go to culinary school. Wow. 
Um, That's a big decision to make in high school. Yeah, I get. I mean, I wasn't really a school. Didn't really right. Uh, yeah, well, it didn't really make sense to me. But I loved cook. Um, but I also the at the time the CIA was kind of scary, or at least I was scared about the amount of. Uh, Expectations. Um, the experience you had to have right. to, to get, you know, to qualify to go there. So I ended up going, working in this restaurant. That's why I worked in that restaurant. Cause you need to get a, you had to get a recommendation from somebody. Oh yeah. And I was kind of working for the recommendation Right. that the, 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 the more I worked and kind of the better I got at the job, the less they wanted to see me go. Right. So the, the recommendation took about, I think two years to oh, actually, <laughs> to actually get it. Not that I cared that much cause I knew I was gaining experience also. So I think I did that. I stopped going to college at some point in there. I think when the restaurant moved, I just stopped going and just kept working. And what, if you had stayed in college, what would you have been? A I was a cr criminal justice major. You shitting me? Yeah. Um, what, 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 wait a second, criminal justice major. What did you want? What did you want to do? I don't know. It's too hard to really remember. Did you want to save criminals or did you want to put them away? That's a no. big difference. That's a big difference. That is, that is, but I don't, I, I don't really remember. I mean, I, I went for a year and a half. Can I make a, can I make a, a postulation? Is that a word? Sure. Uh, can I make a, I want to postulate. like a, a boil or something. <laughs> That's a postulation. <laughs> I want to suggest that I would think that if you would not gone to culinary school and if you had gone to if you had gone to be a criminal justice lawyer i believe in my heart of hearts that you'd want to get everybody off could have been i think that might have I, shifted somewhere after knowing you as as well as i do i think that you i think that i think that you have this thing with authority to a certain degree and i think that you would probably What's this thing with authority i mean you know you know what i'm saying you don't i don't think you like authority which i don't either but I, I'm watching this show called Cocaine Cowboys, and they're talking to these guys who, these famous criminal justice guys mm -hmm. who, who were the lawyers for these drug dealers, and they're like household names, like Roy Black and all these guys, and you see them talking, and you just know they're just like, yeah, fuck the, fuck the, the feds. I am so happy to do whatever it takes to get them off. So that, that's an aside. Yeah. So for our listeners, the CIA is not the Central Intelligence Agency in this particular situation. Mm -hmm. The CIA stands for the Culinary Institute of America. There's two locations, one in Hyde Park, New York, and one in Greystone, California. Yeah, the Greystone one, I think, is more continued education. Oh, okay. It's like extra classes. You can go there for a few months and take a class in baking or something like that. I don't think it's as... I mean, it could have changed five times over since I would have gotten this information, but I mean, I graduated in 98, I think. Yeah. So, I mean, the CIA, Johnson and Wales, those are the two biggest in the country. There's not a bigger than the Culinary Institute of America. The, the, is the CIA biggest. is the biggest one, yeah, for sure. So, what was it? I mean, you grew up in Reno. No one leaves Reno. What was it like to move to Hyde Park, New York? Um, wow, you're, this is going deep in the back. I need to get this through. We're <laughs> 14 minutes in. I, I want to fuck around. We got, I got to like haul through. I got to haul through a lot All of right, time. I'll be quick. No, no, um, be quick. Besides, I'll be quick. I, I just know where I'm going with you. I wanted to go as far away as possible. So that's why I chose the school uh -huh. in New York over the school. And there was a school in San Francisco also. And I just felt like this is my shot to go as far yeah. away as I can. So yeah. I, I ended up settling on that school because it, it was, you know, seen as the best. And it was also so far away that it really felt like I was going out right. and doing something. Get tattoos and stuff. That's what I did. <laughs> when I went to Ohio, I got a tattoo and then I told my mother I'm going to get a tattoo. She says, you're not allowed. I'm like, 
I'm in Ohio. You're in New York. I'm in Ohio. Yeah, you, can't you can't stop do, me. You can't do nothing. nothing. You can't do nothing. Yeah, Ohio, yeah. the land of freedom. Yeah, dude. I am in Ohio. I'm getting these tattooed. There's nothing you can do to stop <laughs> me. You can't physically even get here in eight hours. I'll be t- tattooed by then. <laughs> Which one was that? That was this one on this this uh, yeah. this big symbol on the top. Cool. That was the one I almost passed out from. So, what was it like working? What was it like being on a dorm? A com- what is it like being in a dorm where everyone's wearing chef whites all the time? I like that's it's gone back. It's hard. It's you know they the first classes that you take and th- everything could have changed five times over since right. I've you know it's it's it was a long time ago and I think that I, we were up there recently, right? Yeah, was we, that us? we were up there before the pandemic. A few years ago, we were supposed yeah, to do. Was, a, just to do a thing with them. It felt it seemed the same, but there's a lot more going on there. Much younger yeah. people, and I was there. Um, it, it wasn't it wasn't rare to have somebody in their 40s, right. career changing, going to culinary right. school, or somebody who had already had kind of a career in school, going a right. career in food service, going to school, or something like that. It seems a lot younger now, um, but uh, it was. Uh, it was very drawn out of an experience. Huh. I didn't really enjoy it because right. it felt like first year, it seemed like a lot of classes that were kind of fluffing it up. Right. Like uh, food theory and this and that. You really just want to cook. Right. Right. And it took, seemed like a long time to get to that point where you're just cooking. Because at that time, in the late 90s, the Food Network is really kind of ramping up. I remember when the Food Network started in the, late, in the early 90s. Late 80s, early 90s, the Food Network really kicked up. I would imagine at that time, a lot of people are just like, hey, this is actually a business we can get into. Were there anybody that you remember going to school with who might be someone that you'd, we would know now? Because, I mean, we're about that age where there's probably, you know, you were in like a, a group of like... Well, there were, there were a lot of people going there. No, no is the easy answer to that question. Okay. But, I mean, people are still out there cooking, doing great stuff. Um, but, like, as far as notoriety, I, no one springs to mind. Um, but I think there were 70 people graduating every three weeks. It, it wasn't like there was a how class. Did, how did they do that? on all these different because you'd switch classes every two weeks all right. so you'd just kind of keep revolving through and there was a graduation like every two months or something like that so it was, it was they were pumping out a lot of people so at some point you realize you have to get an internship yes what happened where did you go I went to Paris what was that like that was pretty cool I actually had written something like 40 letters and my buddy who spoke, you know, we didn't have like Google Translate or anything like that at that time. So I had my buddy who, who uh, knew French write me a bunch of letters and I copied them off and sent them out to a bunch of restaurants. Yeah. And I was going, I had a ticket, I was going. I didn't have my internship, externship approved because I didn't have a, a valid place that I was working yet. And I right. ended up getting a letter like the last week before I left. Oh my God. Accepting. And I got a lot of back that said they, they were already full or whatever. Um, so I got accepted to this restaurant, which ended up being like the, one of the top rated places in Paris. What was it like? And they still wouldn't improve my externship. What do you, why? Because it hadn't been done before. It wasn't an approved place. So what approved. happened? So, so you got, you get it finally, you get your tickets, you finally get approved, but you got a place, you got a place all squared away and the CIA is just like, we're not going to validate yeah, it. It's not a valid, it wasn't a valid so place. So then what do you, then what do you do? I had to go through some rigmarole to get it validated but they weren't going to approve my externship i was already working at the place i just remember it being a little bit of a dramatic thing like my parents were like you're going you know he's 
Oh, you're going to work in Paris. You're going to approve this externship site, something like that. Some some kind of nonsense went down. What was it like showing up in Paris, not really speaking the language, and then going right off the bat to a job? And where did you stay? Um, little apartment. You found it beforehand. Uh, I I don't remember that. Okay, so you don't speak the language. You show up for the first day. How nervous are you? Pretty nervous. About as nervous as you can get. So I remember like not really knowing which door to go into because I know you don't yeah. go in the front door, but I don't know where the side door is because it was in this kind of little, uh, there's an alleyway around that. I just want you to know that I'm going to bring this back to the way I felt the first time I met you at Oriol, and this is going to be very similar. Okay. So I just, we're going to bring it all back. So you show up, you go in, you meet the who? The sous chef, I guess, at the time. You know, it was kind of like stand over there, wait. I remember just kind of being shuffled around. Right. No one really knew what to do with me. But they're they're pretty they're pretty precise about how they handle their their externships. Their stagiaires, they're called over there. Right. So I only got the place in this one because they actually have room. Like they only have two at any one time. Right. And that guy's last day was Friday and. Saturday and your day is Monday. So they knew who I was and all that kind of stuff. They were expecting me. But did they speak English? Some did. Some of the yeah. cooks did. Yeah. So what was the first thing you had to do? You remember what, do you remember some of the things that you had to do there? I remember having to... I remember being really annoyed at them because <laughs> <laughs> they wouldn't... They wouldn't... They'd explain to me something in French um, and it would be like clean a mushroom or something like that. Right. And I'd start doing it, and then someone come over and say, no, no, you know, they'd throw a little temper tantrum um, and say I was doing it wrong. They would never show me the end result of what it's supposed to be. They would just say, oh, so. go, go in the corner and do this. And they wouldn't show me what it's supposed to turn up on. So I was a little bit trying to figure it out. Do you think that that was like their move? You think that was their move to no, kind of like... it's just a very, very... It's a very fast-paced... Long hours, long hours, um, working type of a thing. You, like in in France, as a cook, I think it's not seen as this like high uh, position. Right. Right. You're just you're a cook or you're a mechanic or you're whatever. It's just a trade, really. It's interesting you say that because I just watched the Wolfgang Puck movie on Disney Plus, the documentary on him. And it was fascinating because of the, what you're saying, that there was it was almost it was, it was looked down upon. Obviously, it was a much early, it was in the '70s when he was doing it. But it was there's a lot of similarities with this mindset, and I can imagine that it would be a little bit more difficult there because it wasn't as glamorous. The chefs weren't really like coming out of the kitchen and it, stuff, right? It wasn't. Well, the the chef it was a glamorous spot. It was a very oh. glamorous. It was like three star Michelin, like right in the hot part of town it was a very glamorous restaurant and the chef was you know uh, seen as a kind of a celebrity figure but to be a cook it, it's the grueling hours like i think seven in the morning to midnight oh my god five days a week and then no no lunch on saturday so you could go in at three or something like that um it was it was it was do you tough. remember the most fun position or thing you did when you were there I remember working on, they had this duck, it was called Canard Episcius. It was like this really, uh, uh, a lot of herbs uh, mixed in caramelized honey. You'd cook the honey and add a bunch of herbs to it and you kind of lacquer the duck with it yeah. and roast it and just keep basting it. And the guy that I was working under on that station ended up getting in a motorcycle accident. 
So I ended up running the station for like three weeks Holy while he recuperated. Shit. Were you psyched or you freaked out? I think by the time he got in the act, I was, I remember being okay with it. I understood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you get, the, the French is like, you don't know that many words to like be able to get by. It's like, how long, what time, get it ready, three right. doc, you know, it's. It's really kind of simple, wouldn't you? Not a lot of finesse words that you need to know. Right. You're not like trying to right. talk politics, right? It's just like right. five duck in 30 minutes. You know, right. you kind of figure that stuff out. Um, but where was I going with this? You were saying that the guy had gotten an accident and then you were... So I was running the roasting station, right? For this, for this three-star Michelin restaurant wow. for a few weeks. How did you feel? I felt pretty... I, it was... I felt pretty... It was pretty easy at that point because right. I was... They had a very few menu items. You're just roasting, you're not finishing. I kind of got, I had, I think I was there for four months total and this was towards the end of it. So I kind of had gotten into the rhythm of things by that point. Do you think that they appreciated you or do you, was there ever any sing thing like telling you should stay or? I remember this one time when they used to hand out cash tips on a weekly basis to all the, to the kitchen staff. Nice. And one of the last weeks they, I like, the chef handed me a cash tip, which I think was a... Was Do you remember a, a, how much it was? I think it was probably like 40 francs or something like that. Not bad. You know, I don't, I don't remember. Not but bad. I remember there were francs involved, yeah. not euros. I was, I was, I'm glad you said francs. <laughs> if you said euros, I'd be like, ah, that was no... That was cool. yeah, it was just the gesture of it, I think, was more important than the, than the cash. Do you have any fond memories? What's your fondest memory of when you were there? Because, I mean, you're not... You, I mean... You've, you've already done this two things. You've gone from Reno to New York, Hudson Valley, New York, and then from Hudson Valley, New York to Paris. Was there any memory that you have from that trip in Paris that really kind of sticks out? Um, with regards to the restaurant or anything, just Paris in general? Anything. I remember there was a sandwich that I could not get enough of. Go ahead. It's called the Grec Frite. Go ahead. And it was lamb, like on a doner kebab okay. type of thing. Yeah. And... In a, like a hero role, like you know those Columbo yeah. or Columbus, it was like that kind of style and shape of role. Yeah, and they'd push it onto the 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 lamb to get like some of the juices. Right, right, right onto the the spinning the, the meat. spinning meat thing, um, and then kind of grill it a little bit, put the lamb inside, and stuff it with French fries and Dijon mustard, like hot, like hot, like burn your face off, like that kind where you have to take a second. Yeah. That kind of like hot horseradishy Dijon mustard and stuff full of fries. We we lived off of those things. So they were like five francs too. You should have sent that to your place back in Reno. Yeah. That would have been, sure. they would have blown the doors off. What was that called? The place called again in Reno? Cafe Soleil. No, no, the sub place. Oh, the, the sub, sub place, right. Send it to the sub guy. Yeah. What is, I, I, for me, my times in Paris, I love, Paris is still one of my favorite cities of all time. The only times I've ever been there has been in like fucking hot as balls August. Mm -hmm. It's because obviously my, my family's cheap. <laughs> I've always, we've always been cheap. It's always been in August. All the restaurants are closed. All the restaurants are closed. But I remember even the last time I was there, which was a few years ago with my kid, it was August. We go in August. Mm -hmm. And I remember the smell of the streets was like, it brought me right back. I love Paris, mm. even on, I like off-season Paris. Like, yeah. I don't need like picture-perfect Paris. I need some hot as balls, this is terrible Paris. Yeah, the, the thing about it is there's, it's really easy to eat poorly there. It's still a tourist town, yeah. they do some like, there's a lot of crap there too, but the good places are fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So you come back, 
you're all now you you feel like if I can do it in France, I can do it anywhere, right? Yeah, you I was, feel like I was kind of done with school by that point. Oh, I, I bet. Feel like, but that's especially considering they were gonna ju- they were gonna jerk you off. <laughs> They're gonna jerk, jerk you off. <laughs> <laughs> it was gonna give you a hard time with the externship. Yeah, but of I course you're done with school. Sorted out. So I basically See? got this 30. place approved. Yeah. Well, I mean that's a good reason to be pissed. Yeah, um, that all got worked out, um, and then. After school, I actually went back to Reno for a little bit of time, just to save up, like work and save up a little bit of money before moving back to New York to work at Oriole because I had a friend who was working there, a friend from culinary school. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. So how did you did you move? Did you have the job before you moved back, or no? I I moved went back to moved back to New York. I stayed with him in Jersey City, um, and just started trying to trail around in stage places to find a job. Right. Until eventually, after about a week or two weeks or something like that, I just started going to work with him and basically just waited for somebody to quit until I got offered a job. Oh, really? So I think I worked at Oriole for like two weeks until a spot opened up and I'd proved myself and I could just move right into it. That was a strong move. Yeah. Did you think, how, how much time did you give yourself before? So you were doing two weeks for free, basically. I just, it was going to happen eventually. Right. You know, if otherwise they just tell you not to come back wow. after a few days. So that's a strong move too, because it's like, you're just there, no, you're getting, you know? you're there and you're doing the work and right. do you remember what you were doing it? Uh, Garmanger, salad state, you know, entry level type stuff, which is one thing about culinary school that they, they think, you know, they, they build you up to like go and be a restaurant manager and then you're always starting in the salad station no right. matter where, no matter where, what you do. I'm glad that I worked behind that salad station twice. The same one that you worked at Pine. Mm-hmm. When you started working there under Jerry Hayden, right? Was he the chef at uh, Oriole when you first got no. there? It was Charlie. Oh, it was Charlie. Yeah. What was it like working at Oriole with Charlie as the chef? Charlie Palmer. Um, it was, it was, it was very intense. Not necessarily just because Charlie was the chef. It just was a very interesting kitchen to work in. It just had this kind of geometry to it where everyone could see everyone. It was a small space, but it all really worked. Right. There was a place for everything, even though it was tiny. Um, and it was a really interesting place to start my, well, go on to my worldview of what kitchens are right. supposed to be like. Uh, Charlie would show up my, a little bit before dinner time and just start calling tickets. Huh. I, I think a, a year or two before that was probably when he was more uh, involved in the daily minute-by-minute kitchen stuff, but he was off already starting new restaurants and stuff like that at that time. Just for the background, the history of Charlie, Charlie Palmer is one of the great American chefs of the, you know, the new school, really. Alice Waters, Thomas Keller, you know, these young American chefs who started out doing, you know, local cuisine and really kind of focus on American cuisine. He started out working for Larry Forgione at the uh, River Cafe, mm-hmm. and which was also became one of just a, a, a monumental New York restaurant under the Brooklyn Bridge, in between Brooklyn Bridge and, and um, the Manhattan Bridge. And then subsequently he worked with David Burke who ended up working for working at the River Cafe and then Charlie became very famous and he opened up Oriole. He basically bought a townhouse and the restaurant, the bottom floor was the dining room. The, bo- the, the bottom and the top, the bottom and the second floor were the dining room and then the kitchen was in the back. But it was a converted townhouse. It yeah. wasn't like your typical restaurant. Yeah, the basement had the pastry section and prep section in it. Yeah. And then 
you'd have to run up and down these two flights of stairs to get to the kitchen from the walk-ins and all that It was stuff. a fascinating concept because it really was not standard for, I mean, it was an apartment. Mm -hmm. Like even on the, the, the top floor was the office mm -hmm. space. And it was, I just remember because when I, when I first went there, I just remember it being, it feeling like a different vibe than the restaurant that you're used to because there are these different levels and the basements, the, the pastry station mm -hmm. and all the walk-ins are in the basement. It gets a little bit of New York, Manhattan yeah, too. It, it was a real New York. to make it work. And, it was a super New York vibe, but it was like this different thing. So, I mean, he started Oriole at a very young age and he became one of the great chefs of New York still to this day. So... And it was picturesque. I mean, once he opened it up, it was very famous right off the bat because he was so young and he was known for the River Cafe and stuff like that. What was it like working at that? That your your years at Oriole were probably. And I've talked to Elon Hall, our friend Elon Hall. If you talk to a lot of people, that particular kitchen where you ended up working your way through the ranks and becoming sous chef, that is a, a very very. That group of line cooks, they all became, you know, something else. I mean, it was a, it was a serious all-star group. Brian Voltaggio, uh, you know, a lot of those guys went on to become, you know, chefs. Yeah. Well, I mean, there was a, back in those days, there were fewer restaurants where really dedicated uh cooks wanted to go work. There just weren't. Right. It wasn't like now you can... There's restaurants all over the place that are doing amazing food. Um, but I think that at that time, you went there to learn that specific cuisine. Right. Um, so it kind of makes sense to kind of funnel people through and then spread them out. I, I've, I've learned something, too, by the way. We, we you know, we, I worked at Ori, I worked for Charlie later. We, by the time I got to uh, work for Charlie, uh, you had gone through the ranks. You'd become the, you were the PM sous chef. I think, I think that was right, right? Possible. You were the P, that's when I met you because... The story was that Tyler Florence worked at Oriole. Now, I've talked to guys who, I've talked to you and I've talked about it. You said, I never saw Tyler Florence in that restaurant. I've talked to other people. It turns out he was the chef at the, one of Charlie's other restaurants, the uh, chef and culinary, culinarians that turned into Alva. Ah, he was the, he chefs and cuisiniers. He opened up, Charlie opened up a restaurant, a late night restaurant for cooks. Mm -hmm. Like he wanted a place for chefs to hang out. So he opened up this place on uh, 20, 22nd Street, and it was called Chef's Cuisinaires Club. And then all these chefs would show up at late night after service and stuff like that. And that's where, that's so the restaurant we ended up it turning into Alva, where you and I first worked together. Mm -hmm. That's where Tyler Florence was the chef. Of. Uh, he was the chef of the CCC. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, we just figured that out. It was a weird, weird thing. So I, at this point, I mean, you've kind of run through the ranks. Do you have any fond memories of like excite? I mean, why, be, to become the sous chef at at a restaurant like Oriole, it's got to be a huge, huge. I mean, that means you know everything. I think I'd gone. I became the sous chef because I left. I went to go help open the restaurant in Las Vegas, Oriole Las Vegas. Oh yeah. And that's where I met Jerry Hayden, who was helping us open that place. Who had just gotten the job to be the chef de cuisine at Oriole. So we did great work at Las Vegas. He opened up. He was looking for a staff of people that he knew. And so he hired me on to be the sous chef back in New York. Yeah. Because I was only going to Las Vegas for like a year. And then I was going to go back to New York. That was kind of always the deal. I wasn't going to go there to live forever. 
one of the things about your you as a as a not just a cook and as a but you've always been someone that there's a the cooks that I talked to who worked under you hold you in high regard as like a mentor. Mm. I they talk to me. They said I mean I know that even to this day It's not what they say on Instagram. It's not what they say. Guys, you know who you are. If you're listening, you know who you are. Show some fucking love. But I don't I mean, you can't just, hashtag. You can't just tell it to me. You got to tell it to the man. I mean, I know that. I know it's that okay. They don't have my number. They shouldn't have your number. Exactly. But it's, what's fascinating is, is you have created this. You, you have this. You have a reputation, and you have a reputation. Of, and when we first met, we first met was, I had a. This was we first met in I think 1999. I had. I had a green. I had a shop in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, and the uh, a, one of the buyers at Crate and Barrel got a hold of me and said, "There's this restaurant that wants an unstealable table." I said, "What's an unstealable table?" They're like, "Well, it's going to be in Grand Central Station, and it needs to be really uh, very heavy so somebody can't walk off with it." So I said, "Yeah, I'll make you. I'll make you that." So I designed something real quick, you know, super heavy, like a two hundred pound tabletop with like crazy legs. Nothing. I mean, it wasn't a beautiful table. It was like, and I look back at it now, and it's like, whatever. where is it? Where do you think it is? It's got to be Charlie. Must have it somewhere in storage. He's got a few of my. T- I know that he's got a few of my things. That's a that's an Apple store now. That's a, yeah. So the yeah. restaurant Metrazor, which is in, in the main room of Grand Central Station, became is now the Apple store. So. When the time came for me to meet with Charlie, who owned Metrazor, they asked me to come to this meeting. And I said, at the time, I started going to culinary. So I went to the Institute of Culinary Education, which at the time was called Peter Kump. And I said, well, I can't make this meeting. I'm, at, I'm in culinary school. So they, I mean, they offered me a job on the phone. Like Tim Bartley, mm-hmm. our, the old uh, you know, lawyer and, and project manager, said, you need to do an internship. You do it with us and we'll pay you. So I was bef- sight unseen. Because they, they wanted a guy who not only was in the restaurant business, but could make shit. So I ended up meeting with Charlie, and then I became the project manager for his restaurants. He really didn't need me to cook. I mean, he had enough cooks in all his restaurants. Mm-hmm. He wanted someone who could, you know, understood construction and understand building and stuff like that. So at one point, I remember, that, I'll tell you a funny story. So one of the first times I spent some time in the office at Oriole, Tim Bartley and the people working there, noticed that downstairs Sex in the City was being filmed. And they said to me, they said to me, we want, we want to send you down to invite the cast of Sex in the City into Oriole. Charlie wants to, do you remember this? Uh, no, I don't, I don't think I ever heard this story. So, so they said, the, the trailer's right down the stairs. We want you to go and do whatever it takes. And I, Tim Barley said, this is going to be like this, because I was an intern. I was a paid intern, but I was an intern. And he says, this is going to be like what you do, the Howard Stern interns do. You send them to do some crazy thing. He says, we need you to get uh, Jessica Parker and Sarah Jessica Parker and Kim Cattrall and all that. We want you to come to Oriole and we need you to get. So I'm like, well, what am I supposed to say? And they're like, they said, this is your, this is your, this is, this is up to you. This is, this is like, it was a test. Mm-hmm. Can I get them to come into the restaurant? They were down the street. So I went downstairs and I went to, I remember talking to one of the guards outside of the, um, the trailer of Sarah Jessica Parker. And I said, listen, I'm here. And I, and I, and I totally like straightened up I, you know, I was at the time, good looking kid. I was showed some confidence. I'm like, I just want to, we just, Charlie Palmer would love to invite the cast of, I was like really acting it out. Charlie Palmer of Oreo right over there would love it if, 
Sarah Jessica Parker, Kim Cattrall would come down for dinner on the house. Yeah, not, none of the grips. I like, guess. None of, none oh, yeah, no yeah. grips. Grips, you can go grip. Go fucking grip. We don't want you. And I remember they were staring out the window watching me. They were watching me see him. And I don't even remember, but it was funny because I came back in and Charlie was upstairs. He said, did you, did you, get, did you get him to come? I'm like... I don't. I, didn't, I talked to somebody. They they wouldn't let me go up to them direct. And I don't know if it was like a. If I had said, "Oh yeah, they're coming in the seven thirty table for four. If I had done that, I might have been the general manager within minutes. <laughs> you should have. If I, that was the, one of the things about Charlie is if you if you if you prove yourself without you having your hand held, you jumped up the ladder at a fucking alarming rate. And I just remember that was one of the things. And then at one point, we were laughing or something like that. And I was, I was fixing Charlie's roll. I was putting Charlie's Rolodex into his Palm Pilot. That was one of his Palm Pilots. <laughs> I was adding his Rolodex. I was transferring it into a Palm Pilot. And he says, so what do you want to do? You go to culinary school. What do you want to do? And I said, well, Chef, I'd like to cook. And he goes, he says, okay, uh, I can't get you into the kitchen. You have to talk to Chef Jerry Hayden. That was at the time. You're the sous chef. He's, Jerry Hayden's the chef. You have to interview with him. You have to, you got to deal with him. I can't pull any strings. I mean, he could have, right. if he wanted to. He could have right. said, yeah, okay. your fader's coming in tomorrow. I mean, whatever. <laughs> so I remember being like, great, thank you so much. Now, at the time, Jerry had seen me maybe coming into the kitchen to fix something or give something to something, or I was like the project manager at the mm -hmm. time. And I remember the interview, and I remember that Jerry says to me, he says, I know that you're the welder. Because at the time I did the table for Metrazor and I was doing like, I, I remember doing some like w weird wine flight cases with caging for Alva. They oh, were those like, like 40 pound wine yeah, those four, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you remember. They were like 900 pounds. They looked like, like a milk crate kind of a thing, yeah. right? Like a, like, a, like old school that's milk right, caddy, that's right. right? It, fit two, it fit two or three bottles of wine and it must have, each so one that, was like I think they like would have to pounds. take it to the table or yeah. something. You put it on the side of the table, the table would fall over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had no, I had no idea about like oh is this supposed to be light i thought you wanted it to look cool there was there was so 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 jerry sat me down and he said he sits me down and he's he's just you know i think he's slightly irritated right off the bat because like charlie's guy's coming down here and he wants to work in the kitchen and now i kind of have to like i have to like he was like you know breaking my balls wasn't the thing he was just like trying to like intimidate me or something like that and he goes so you're a welder what thing what makes you think you can cook and i don't know i said i said well in my opinion and I was, I said, I said, my opinion, I don't think there's anything different between making sculpture and making food. You're taking ingredients and proper technique and giving it to someone, whether it's making steel sculpture or tables or making a dinner. I think it's the same. And he turns to me with this look of frustration and he said, I've never heard that one before. All right, I'll see you tomorrow. He's like, he was irritated that I had like this answer. And, I, and it was, there was no stuttering. back to it. Yeah. At the time, I was a terrible stutterer. My dad would like, my dad got me so nervous, and then if I started to stutter, he'd go, uh, 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 so it made it even worse. So like, if, if I ever had a stutter, I would get more and more intimidated. And for this line to come out as eloquently and beautiful as that there was, he was just like, okay, fucking douchebag, you're in tomorrow. I don't know. What to do. I totally took him off guard. And I remember the next day I came in, I was so excited. It was, to me, it was like, it's incredible opportunity. In my mind, I thought, if this doesn't work out, I'm back in the office. No big deal. They're, they'll have me. They don't. These guys. These guys in the office. They couldn't turn a screw with a screwdriver. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like I was the handyman, but it was more along the lines that I was. 
able to do things. Jack of all trades. Jack of all trades, exactly. A factotum. A fact. What's a factotum? Jack of all trades. Jack of all trades. So I remember telling my dad because my dad was a big foodie and he knew about Oriole. He knew about well, Charlie Palmer. He was Palmer. a chef, right? He, worked, he was a he, he was, was a cook. cook. Right. He. I'll tell you a funny story. He became very close friends with Joe Baum, and Joe Baum was the owner of the original Rainbow Room. And Joe Baum and, and my dad ended up becoming friends with Joe Baum. He used to my dad used to do events at his winery. He knew all these chefs. And at the time, Waldy Maloof, the guy we met at the at this, uh, Culinary Institute of America, who's the main guy there, was the chef at the Rainbow Room. My dad worked out a deal where he would come in every Thursday afternoon and cook the banana breads at the Rainbow Room. So he, they loved him. He was an older guy. He was like the father. Mm -hmm. He was like every, all the cooks used to come in. And, you know, he was 70 years old. He's coming and making all the banana breads. He loved every second of it. They didn't pay him. He just wanted to be there. And one fucking crazy story is he had a, wa a really expensive watch on. I don't, for him, a really expensive watch might have been like a $150 watch. I mean, it was a really, you know, you know. And at the end of the shift, he was getting out of his clothes. He had his locker. He was getting out into his street clothes. And he realized, I don't have my watch. He baked like 70 banana nut breads and one of them his fucking watch was. He didn't say a word because he's just like... <laughs> What am I supposed to do? What are you? Someone's getting a watch. So it was that was his his he was he was. They would have found it before it got to a customer. They still got to slice it. One would hope. Yeah. One would hope. You know. I mean, it never. I mean, we never heard a thing about he, it except. Did he for, ever come back? Did he? Did they ask him not to come back after that? No, they loved him. They didn't give a shit. I mean, he was free and he was doing a good job. He probably he like left it, it on the counter. And he, somebody just, you know, it would have been nice if he had left it on the counter, mm -hmm. but we know that it went. I mean, he was just like that. That. He didn't have the ego strength to admit that he fucking dropped his jewelry in the food. Mm -hmm. you know, he didn't have the ego strength for that. I mean, he would have been like, he would have said it nothing. So that was his, I mean, his cooking experience, which was a lot of fun. So I called my dad and I told him, Charlie's going to, I'm, I'm going to cook at Oriole. I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to go to Garde Manger, Cold Station. I'm so excited. He said to me, he was so happy, he was so proud of me, it was such a big deal because, you know, I didn't have any help, nobody helped me get in, there wasn't like calls were made or anything like that. And he says, the first thing I'm going to tell you, because now I'm a professional chef at the Rainbow Room once a week, dropping my fucking watches and the fucking cakes, whoever you see is going to be your senior, call them chef. No matter what, it's a sign of respect, call them chef. I'm like, are you sure? I didn't say, I'm sure, are you sure? I'm like, okay, you got it. He's like, I know, I'm at the Rainbow Room. Everybody's, yes, chef, yes, chef, yes, chef. I remember the first person I met at Oriole down in the basement was you. I had my outfit, I had my notebook, I had the fucking thermometer, I had the Sharpie, yeah, I had it chef. all ready to go. And I said, uh, hi, chef, I'm Jeff, I'm here for, you know, Garde Manger. And the first thing you said to me is like, don't fucking call me chef. I don't think he said fucking call me chef. He says, don't call me chef, I'm Tony. And I said, and I listened to my father saying in the back of my head, just keep calling him chef. Keep calling him chef. I'm I trying, said, I'm trying you got it, chef. I'm trying to trip you up. Yeah, he's trying to trip you up. Yes, chef. Yes, chef. Whatever you say, chef. And you said, you looked at me and you put it, you point your finger and say, don't call me chef. I'm Tony. And I remember being very like, I'm like, okay. You know, there's some kitchens that do that. Like, I know like you go to Thomas Keller's kitchen, everyone's chef. The, I yeah. think it's confusing and maddening. Yeah. Like who, who's supposed to turn around when you yeah. say, hey, chef. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. 
obviously it's a term of endearment. I mean, I, I think you got to work respect. up to something. It's also a little bit of psychological. Like you get to that point and you get to be called chef. You know, right. right. You know, well, my dad wanted me to, well, I mean, it's French for chief, right? Yeah. So it's like, everyone's your chief. So I just remember going into the guard manger and I worked, I think I worked the A, I think I was helping prep for dinner PM. I was, I was in there in the morning for prepping and I was helping with tuna tartare. I remember helping cut the tuna tartare. I remember, I think I was mandolining the, I was doing the Japanese mandolin with the um, shallots and stuff mm -hmm. like that. I, it was so much fun. I remember the scariest thing happened was, and it might, I don't know if it was you or whatever, but they had me shuck oysters. And I don't remember, I wasn't at oyster class yet at culinary school. And I remember not, I remember shucking them, opening them up, no problem. But I don't remember uh, removing them from the bottom. Ah. I don't remember removing from the bottom, and I don't think I did. I think it was just so much like, the guy who was in the cold station said, okay, uh, open up six oysters. So I'm cracking them open and putting on the thing, put whatever you guys had on salt or whatever. And I remember it went out and then either the sous chef, I don't know if it was the other AM sous chef or it was you or somebody said, well, who, who shucked these oysters? Like a whole restaurant, a whole kitchen got quiet. Who shucked these oysters? I, I did, chef. And he goes, you didn't cut them underneath. You didn't separate them. And I'd be like, oh, I'm sorry, chef. I'll, I'll, I'm sorry about that. It's like, now you know. Don't do it again. I don't. It wasn't Jerry. I don't remember who it was. I think I, part of me thinks it was you. But regardless, I also have a fucking funny story with our old friend Scotty, Scotty Romano. Scotty Romano was one of the. Um, so in the kitchen, you had Scotty and you had Johnny and you had all these guys. I remember Will. Uh, Will was frying and all these guys. They were such a good. Um, uh, Johnny's wife, Vivian, all these. It was such a really a very a unique group. And I remember at one point, Scotty, who ended up becoming our sh my sh my partner really at Alva when we all went down there, said to me, "Watch these tweels." It was like a Parmesan tweel in on a thing on the, in the oven, and I had to watch. He had to go do something, and then somebody grabbed me to do something else, and they burned the tweels, and he lit me up. He doesn't remember this. And I talked to him. I didn't. I talked to him a couple of weeks ago. A couple of weeks ago, I know that he doesn't remember lighting me up. But he he talked to me as if I had betrayed him. I didn't even know who I was. <laughs> I had betrayed him because I said that I would watch the tweels and, and I left. let them go a little bit dark. But somebody grabbed me for something else. I at the time I didn't feel like I could stand up and say I gotta watch these tweels. I can't watch the Parmesan tweels, man. I can't go anywhere. If he grabs me, he ain't grabbing me. I remember him just looking at me like, you've betrayed me. And he gave me that kind of New Jersey yelling at me a little yeah, bit. I remember yeah, that. Yeah. So, and then the only other memory I have was, it was cleanup. We were cleaning up at the end of the night. It was fun. I remember I got to plate some of the tuna tartare with, with the sprigs in the middle with the tuna can and put them in the tuna can and, you know, make the mold. And I was cleaning up. And I was cleaning the fryer, and I remember touching the heating element with the wet rag, and I remember steam filling the kitchen, and Brian Voltaggio starts screaming at me. What the fuck did you do? I don't remember he said fuck, but it was more, more it was screaming at me. It's a lot of cursing. I'm adding, this is a podcast, yeah. I'm adding a little bit of, you know. But I definitely remember that, and the only other thing I remember was. 
I was doing, and this is my extent of cooking. I remember, you know, there was like a couple nights at Oriole, mm -hmm. and I remember Will handed me over. This is how much of an impactful thing it was. Like I remember the things that happened. I remember Will handed me over a a, a pan with some stuffed calamari that I was supposed to plate. I remember that dish. Stuffed calamari I was supposed to plate. I had a wet rag and um, to hold the pan, and Jerry stopped everything, and he says. You can't eat, hold a uh, hot pan with a wet rag. It's going to burn right through you. Go dry it off in the fryer. Dry it off in the fryer. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, that's, and then that was the extent of it. And at that point, this experiment of three nights trailing, Lou, um, Louis, um, Charlie was just like, all right, I, this is enough. I need you, I don't need you, I don't need you cooking for me. I need you like opening a restaurant or helping me with the restaurant. So that was my, that was my complete experience. You had the whole thing and I'm. Dude, one week. those moments. I wish I would have done that. I remember, I remember those moments so fondly. I also remember you guys had like this like slangy code talk. You guys had this one thing. You had this guy who, who when, when something was weird, you'd say, oh my lunga or something like, oh my lang, well my, oh my lunga is, was like. One of the prep cooks had, a, had his own language basically. Yeah. And it was easy to adopt. It was hard to, it was hard to uh, not have that permeate through the yeah, kitchen yeah. yeah it was like this like it was like it was like a, almost like a bart simpson expression like you know like oh my lingo was like you know don't have a cow or something yeah, like that yeah. what dishes do you remember you so you're now you were the sous chef and you were there for a while but you not only that you charlie was sending you off to different restaurants to open up or to be kind of like the corporate chef do you remember any dishes that were like these signature dishes that you were doing at oriole at Oriole? Um, well, there was the scallop sandwich, which I was, was gonna, the thing. I was hoping that right? you were going to bring which, that up. Which I think kind of became its own. Every once in a while, Charlie would have to draw, like pull it back to originally how it was supposed to be, which was like a little bit of potato. Can you describe nice that dish? It's a, a scallop. Uh, I think it was a U10. It was a big scallop. Monster. Like a big scallop. Sliced in half and then put between two. Uh, let me start from the beginning. Go ahead. It was somebody's job to have two five-gallon buckets of peeled potatoes yeah. on the station of the person who was supposed to make these. Um, in water. In water. But you'd have to pull up a few so they could dry out a little bit on top. So you'd have to continuously like fill it up. Oh, I forget. No. The, the, the bucket of potatoes would be in the fridge, and he'd just call to you for more potatoes. We'd go through two five-gallon buckets of potatoes a night. For the easily. sandwich. For the sandwich. So you have to come fill this thing up every once in a while. And it was the signature dish. So the chef or whoever was expediting would be in charge of making those or setting them up. Not cooking them, but prepping them. Because it had to be done all in minute. Oh, really? Otherwise, the potatoes would turn color. So it had to be done, like, right away. You'd, you'd, you'd great, great, not grate the potato, but julienne the potato, squeeze it out, squeeze all the water and starch out of right. it, mix it with a little salt and pepper, put it on a plate in a little kind of a tumble, like a, nest, almost, like a little right? nest, right? With salt and pepper. Put two slices of uh, scallop on top, another little amount of potato. You kind of like twist it around so it's yeah, like, yeah. you know, it gets a little bit of a baskety kind of a thing on there. And then you cook it in clarified, but like a lot of clarified butter, like halfway in up. In a pan? Yeah. And you have really? To a them lot? And halfway was, up? Yeah. You're like frying in clarified butter? Yeah, I mean, I think that it shouldn't have been that much at the end of the day, but it always kind of right. became this thing. Um, and then that would be served with a beurre blanc with v dots of veal demi-glace. 
And that number was... 10 scoops of zucchini and cucumber. What's the number 10 scoops? It's like a size of a scoop. Oh, It's oh, like a really oh. tiny scoop. You'd have to be... So, I mean, that was... I mean, I remember that, like, I got one of... I mean, I remember that that was... That was and two chive points. Very important. Two chive points. <laughs> What's a chive point? You know, like, the, the oh, end that, of the oh, chive, the like, you know... Had to be four inches or something like that. One of the things that was, I think that one of the things that exemplified Charlie's cooking was it was very architectural. Even the desserts, like the desserts were known for this very, very, you know. I think that was the pastry chef at the time who kind of set the tone for that. But but in my mind, like I think that there was this. You know, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I think that fine dining also back then was a little bit more less free form. Right. And more about. You know, that was stacking that, things. You had to look very. But that was eighties. I mean, that style, that that's just that that's potato scallop sandwich is so evocative of, of like a, it looks like a, it's almost like an oyster that you have. The, yeah, the it, did, oyster it looks like it's or a scallop. Almost. A scallop, right? It looked like a scallop shell. Yeah, actually. I never, like I never put shell. that together. That's really? interesting. Yeah. I mean, it was like I remember it being like a very you know a very I didn't realize how much how much prep there was involved as to make it. Yeah, I think it got to a point though, like it's, it's kid, working in kitchens is funny. It's like a recipe, it changes over time, whether, whether you want it to or not. The, the, started having too much potato, it'd be these big tumble wheels yeah. of fried potato on the outside. I don't know how people actually ate it at, at a certain point. Yeah, It was supposed to be the small, delicate thing. It was, but like, a, it was like the size of the plate, almost, I, like a hamburger almost, right? Yeah, it got big and there yeah. were two on a plate. And I, I think that it, it once it's the signature and it starts to take on a life of its own, um, even I don't even know if they really liked it after, after a certain point. Do you know how long it took to, like, when you get the order in, how long it took to make? I was pretty quick because you're Cause you cooking it. You, I remember having four big-ass saute pans going. You could put three or four in a saute pan each. And you'd just be doing that all night. Jesus Christ. Like just all How night. Many, just were were you on that station at all? Yeah. Everyone's on that station. We kind of rotated through. How, you think you guys were doing like how many of those dishes, orders would you get? I mean, a busy night, you could easily do 70. Oh my God. So that's 140 of those little fuckers. Yeah. Wow. Burning yourself. They'd be popping. It was terrible. Do you have a dish when you were there uh, that you really loved? It's going back. I mean, the tuna tartare was always a big. Tuna tartare wasn't as ubiquitous yeah. as it is now. You know, that was kind of a. That was a beautiful dish. Yeah, it was nice. The ponzu sauce was great. We put the put the little sprigs the on Mizuna the side. Mizuna sprigs. You put the Mizuna sprigs on the sides, yeah. and they were like kind of like growing out of it. It was such a good look. It's really going back. I should have brought. I have like I have most of it all we right now. We weren't expecting this. We, were, we no. weren't expecting this. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> There was a, a nice foie gras dish that I remember with like little corn cakes, like little corn pancakes type of a things and applesauce. Um, I remember there was the morels stuffed with uh, truffle. I, there was a lot of, kind yeah. of, you know. But I mean, you have fond memory. I mean, you were, it was a signet, there was a their place with like, I mean, it was like, it was one of the hottest restaurants in New York. Yes, time. but you know, to like a dish, it doesn't mean that you liked eating it. It's right. more because you didn't ever eat it. It was like sitting out in the dining room yeah. and eating the dish was a completely different experience than cooking it in the kitchen. You yeah. know, a lot of a lot of people think cooks love to eat, which we do, but it's the act of cooking which right. I think is more that you're taken to more than just it's, you don't. If you like to cook because you like to eat, you're you're insane. 
you're a crazy person. If you know you like to eat, you should be a chef. No, that's not at all what you should be. You should make a job where you make a lot of money and eat at restaurants. That's what you should yeah. do, or you know, cook on your for yourself on the weekends or something like that. But the act of cooking itself is the is the the evocative thing of whatever yeah. you're trying to get to. Like you've told me about, I don't want to compare it to an art form necessarily. Please compare it whatever you but, want. But you know, what, what do you say? You have a very what good bullshit quote. expression. Do I a use? Very, it's a very good one. It's, it really stuck with me. What bullshit expression do I use? Some, it's a compulsion that you do for no good reason. I believe that making art, it, it's a, if you, if you are stranded on a desert, deserted island with no hope of rescue, mm -hmm. if you still want to do it with no one seeing it, that's a compulsion. It is a compulsion. Right. You have to have the compulsion of, of doing it because what you love it. What sense do does working in a kitchen make? It makes well, zero sense. In my mind, I am also thinking about that diner not wanting to see the the fucking Home Depot buckets full of potatoes <laughs> before the dish, you know, you know, I, I just, I, I, there is something, there is something about that, uh, not seeing where it's coming from, how it's made. Mm -hmm. So at, also at this point, Charlie's sending you all over the place. You're working at uh, Oreo Las Vegas. You're helping open restaurants. He's sending you to, if, I felt like there was this sense of like when you would show up to places, like shit was going to get done. Well, you were like a fixer for him. I was kind of, I, Grew up in the ranks just at the right time for right. the evolution of his brand, I guess you say these days. Um, so there was always new work for me. Right. And eventually I became something of like kind of the company turned on to like the, the corporate chef in name, but it was really more of a, a, a fixer, like an extra Yeah, setting, you were you know, the fixer. Kind of a person, like a chef at large more than a, than a corporate chef. I'm going to jump around a little bit just because it interests me. <laughs> Do you remember when Charlie got Charlie got a deal to do to have put his name on Seaborn Cruises? Yeah, and you became the you became his liaison basically to represent his style of food on a cruise ship. Yeah, that what was that experience like? Because I remember you coming back and forth. How much more time do we have? We got time. We okay, got time. great. I the Seaborn Cruise stories. You used to come back because I'm just, I'm just changing channels a little bit. Yeah. I'm changing time because we started working for Alva, and then Charlie took you to liaison working on the cruise ships. Yeah. What was that experience like? I think initially, like right before, like right when we'd started to build the menus and stuff like that, right. September 11th happened and no one knew what was going to happen. Yeah, we got to do September 11th later. I'm jumping. We're going we're gonna to hop back from September 11th because September 11th is one of the reasons why you and I met, really. Ah, right. Yeah, I do remember that. So let's go to... Well, it was ah, just part, it. It, was, you know what? it was part of the, you know, the cruise ship thing. Like, it started off in a weird spot. I'm no going to stop really you and we're going to go back. I'm, gonna, I'm okay. not going to... I'm going to do it in, in order. So we... You and I started working together because one of the restaurants and one of Charlie's restaurants, the people down at the restaurant were not doing what they were supposed to be doing. They were, I, I'm on, we were under the impression that they were giving the bar away and then maybe they weren't, I mean, there was a lot of, a lot of drinking involved and it was a lot of, you know, squeezing. And no we juice. were like, we want to do that. So we went down there and started giving the bar we, away. And there wasn't any we in the beginning. The we was, <laughs> I told the story in the, you'll have to go back to one of the original, the original episodes, uh, the first episode of the Full Blast podcast. If you want to hear how I ended up at Alva, that's the story for that I'm jumping from. So go listen to the first episode of, of the Full Blast podcast. I, you will hear the story of the French guy. The French guy. I, fat ass. <laughs> That's right. The fat ass story, which is the first episode of the Full Blast podcast, 
leads you to this spot here. So stop this podcast, listen to the fat ass story. That leads me to Alva. So we get to Alva, Charlie sent Tony and, and Scotty, who the guy who yelled at me about the tweels, to come down. They told me to come down to help with the restaurant. They did tell us they were gonna replace us. We were down there to help. They did not know we were replacing them. Right. So we were down there not knowing. I remember meeting Charlie, I remember meeting Tony, and I remember meeting Scotty. None of us said anything when we were down there as in like, we're gonna be taking over, but we were like, I remember, oh yeah, he's the guy, don't say, don't call him chef. And there's a guy I burned his wheels. Okay, no problem. I was helping at the front of the house, and then you guys, I guess, were finding your lay of the land down in Alva. It was like you're, you guys are taking over this restaurant today. Like, well, go see what. There was a couple of days. I mean, there was a couple. There was a couple of days. I feel like there was a couple of days. I was down there for a week before the changeover. No, I, you came you, down there the day. The day. I remember thinking to myself, "They're happy that I'm here to help. Maybe things are going to get better." And I remember you and Scotty came down, and then I remember Charlie came down. And at the time, the chef of the restaurant had just bought, like, he bought a new apartment with his wife. He bought all this stuff. He's now the chef of this restaurant. He's, and in my mind, I'm thinking, maybe they're just going to, like, rally. Maybe they're not going get, to get taken down. And I remember Charlie coming down and turning to the chef and said, come down to my office, which was at the restaurant. Mm -hmm. He took him down. I'm at the bar helping whatever, you know, you know, whatever. And I remember the chef coming up, getting on the phone, calling his wife and saying, I just got laid off. Don't cancel this order or whatever, something like that, Man. you know, bought all this stuff. And then I guess Charlie got rid of a lot of the people there because there was, you know, it was like unsupervised mania. And then you- It was only cool when it was a CNC club. Well, I mean, Tyler Florence was not the chef, by the way. Who got so I remember the first night of service, kind of not really knowing what to do, and I and you and, and Scotty were there, and Charlie was uh, expediting, and I remember saying to Charlie, "I've never done this before. I was never a waiter. What should I do?" He gave me probably the greatest simple advice I'd ever gotten in my life. He said, "Here's what I want you to do: just relax." He says, I want you to treat every single person that comes into this place like you're, they're your best friends or your family. And it was like this light shined down and it was like, that makes things so much easier. I think he also told you not to wear a tie. Oh, I was wearing a tie, so he said you take that tie off. Because I was back from the other restaurant. Yeah. He said, you take off that tie, that's right. He told me to take off that. And then we started working there and we were there to kind of like, we were there to really kind of like rein in some things like, don't buy any wine, go through the wine, take this, take care of that, take care of this, and take care of that. That's where our relationship, you and me, our relationship happened because I felt like you and I got along at a very interesting level. That is one of the reasons why I asked to be a partner of Fader Knives because you and I both had a very uh, specific understanding of what needed to be done and we didn't have to check in on each other. Part of the other thing was, is one of the reasons why I went down there, is it was on the cusp of 9-11. So 9-11 happened in September, and then I guess we went down there. We, I don't remember how much... Like a week later. Like it wasn't was... A, wasn't a... Well, one of the things I remember... No, it wasn't a week later. It was like a few... It was like a, like a month or so later. Mm. Because I was still at the other restaurant. And I just wanted to remember a story from 9-11, which was... 
there was a message on one of the restaurant's answering machines from a customer saying, the day of 9-11 saying, I know that I, this happened to the World Trade Center, but I expect you to honor my reservation. It was like, it was like that. Yeah. But so when we, when we were down there, that was one of the things that you and I were doing. Do you, do you remember Alva? Yeah. Do you remember the menu at all? Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Yes. I remember there was a Cuban sandwich on it. Yeah, it's a banging Cuban sandwich. There was on a it. burger, you know, there was there was liver on the menu? No, it's uh, Scotty put liver on the menu. Okay. There was uh, They had a salad. They had a salad shrimp with shrimp on it. I remember this one salad. It was it was like frise or endive with um, with uh, pears and blue cheese with some nuts on it. Okay, I do remember that. Yeah. And it was fucking good. The Cuban sandwich is a banger. The Cuban sandwich is good. Um, I don't remember that much. I remember there was just a one-page menu, right? Yeah. It was, it was a simple thing. And plus, it was post-September 11th. There right. weren't a lot of people coming in. No. It was, it was kind of like just trying to cobble things together. Hoping, you know? to be, hoping to be able to do 90 for dinner was, I think, was tough. Yeah. I seem to remember the... the, the so we uh, started drinking. We never, um, we never drank. And then in there. we like started hiding bottles of wine no, around the. No, 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 no. We. Here's... Know, they, it's really hard for them to count the tap. Well, just to let you know, I had to learn how to. He's kidding up. Clearly, we weren't. We. I was too afraid to do any drinking in that place. We I waited until like, you left. You waited till I left. Yeah. All right. Well, I had to do the. I had to do the the inventory, and Randy trained me how to do the inventory. I had to count each bottle to the tenth. And I was and I was I was sending him I was sending him the I was sending him the reports every Monday. It was inventory. annoying. Don't get me started on inventory. That's right. So one of the things, a few of the things, one of the things I remember about that time, which brings me to now. But I want to get back into the into the. I I got a lot to do with you. I, we're we're good. We're good. One of the things that was interesting about that time, which I thought was going to be devastating to the restaurant business, is that was when Mike Bloomberg. Stop allowing cigarette smoking in restaurants. Ah, do you remember that? I remember. Yeah, it was it probably restaurants was at the same time as cabs. restaurants and bars and cabs. Like yeah, bars, bars and restaurants, yeah, you bars. could not smoke in restaurants and bars. Right. And there was this thought that this is going to destroy the restaurant business, mm -hmm. and it didn't. What I think now, if they had done that now in this climate, it would have been civil war. <laughs> It would have been civil war. It wouldn't. There, no one would have. I mean, it would have been a complete. I mean, an utter. It was the greatest. I mean, it was the boldest decision he'd ever made as a mayor, and it was probably for the best. But it was like an incredibly bold decision that would never fly today. Hmm. You don't think? No, I don't think it would at all. I don't think it would. I don't think. I, don't, I think. I don't think people would ha would be able to handle even the dumbest thing like no smoking in a restaurant. What do you mean? They just like you have to have a you have to have a. I think show your vaccine passport now to go to your restaurant. Depending on the restaurant, but. That's I wanted to I wanted to talk about that a little bit later, which is which is interesting because um, that is an interesting thing. But getting back to that particular time, that was the time where you started doing the seaborne cruises. Yes, I remember when you would go away for like a few weeks 
And then you'd always come back to the, when you came back to New York, you'd come right down to Alva. And I remember like, I felt every time I saw you on your way back, you were more pale. You were slightly <laughs> it's sick. It's a tough job. You were slightly, I know, I thought you were a little bit sicklier looking. And it looked like you had been, you hadn't seen, you hadn't seen sun in It's in an interesting job. You know, they, they, they kind of get you, you're going to go see the world and stuff like that. But you end up really just sometimes those guys don't leave the they're working how to explain it's not a seven day a week job it's a six month straight job so saying it's a seven day a week job implies that you get the eighth day off there is no eighth day off you know it's it there's a day eight day nine day ten and they also they don't really the way the menu went it was just day one through 14 of a menu because that's how long the cruises were that's how long people yeah. were on the cruise for. So you forget what day it is. You forget what month it is. You just know if it's day three or day seven or day 12. How did they do the ordering? Because, I mean, you know, in a restaurant, you can order, you know, you can order. Well, I remember at Alva, you could order, you know, twice a week for your fish to arrive. Yeah. How would they do the ordering? Well, there's for, a lot of frozen stuff. Um, but it's such a ship. giant volume of. of I, this was a smaller cruise line. It was only 200 guests That's maximum. That's a lot of people. And I think 100 staff, something like that. Or, or maybe it was 200. It was, it was almost the same. It was very high end. Almost the same amount of staff as guests. Um, but, I mean, your breakfast, lunch, and dinner for all those people every day. So they would stack. <laughs> the idea was that they would stock the, the fridges and the freezers based on the 14-day schedule. So day... 14 was in the back and day one was in the front, right? Mm -hmm. Rarely did it ever actually work out that way, but that was kind of the concept, which kind of makes sense. What would you do if you ran out of something? Would that not happen? Well, you kind of wouldn't. It was so structured that you weren't really running out of things. I mean, the hardest part was to... There was this idea that everything had to be different every day. That was the real challenge. Like, there has to be a whitefish... Um, a, a steak style fish, whether it's swordfish or salmon or a beef dish, a chicken dish, a vegetarian dish, every day had to be something completely new, including the salads, including the salad dressings, dressings right. including the desserts, including the appetizers. Nobody wants four day, 14 days of it. You want the same food. You want something new, right? Well, I mean, kind of. It's, it's, we'd still have the regular menu of like simple grilled stuff that some people would just get every day. Right. You know, they're not always going there for a tasty menu. Right. But I can understand how boring it is to be on a cruise ship and like, let's see what today's menu is. You know, I remember one of the things you said when I said what it was, what I asked you at the time, what it was like, you said, this is the kind of cruise where you can call up at two o'clock in the morning and get a double pork chop, a half smoked cigarette in the New York times. Yeah. It was really totally, totally inclusive. Whatever you wanted, you got. Um, so part of what I tried to do there was cut back on a lot of that stuff. Because yeah. I'm like, if people are going to ask for whatever they want, you don't doesn't mean you have to make everything hoping they're going to get that. Yeah. Right? You don't have to have... I remember there was, this, there was this plate of cookies by the door leaving the restaurant. Yeah. So there'd be like four different kind of cookies. And the cookies had to rotate also. The cookies on the plate. <laughs> and I'm like, how about you just take it away and free up some room for the pastry chef to like make these new dishes. And they're like, well, we cannot do that. You know, that was, it was you can't remove anything ever, right? I'm like, but they're going to order them if they want them. You still have them. You still bake them. You can still, you know, you do whatever you want. 
And I remember it being a very big conversation about removing these cookies. Do you, do you remember? But they took them away and everything was fine. Do you remember the relationship that Charlie's food had with the, do you remember what you guys added to the, the, the cruise line food that really kind of made it like Oreo style food or um, was there one or? I mean, we did some of the, you know, it's a very difficult thing. And a lot of people who don't work in food just don't really understand that it's not just a, handing a recipe off to someone doesn't make that dish magically appear. Right. There's so many different variables that go into that scallop dish. What makes it work at Oriole doesn't make it work in the middle right. of the Mediterranean. Right. You know? Right. The butter's different. The, 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 if you have chives or not have chives to like, yeah. there's everything is different. The scallops are different size. They're frozen. So you have to use four instead of three. They don't stack properly in there. Um, the potatoes are starchier. There's just so many different variables for everything. Did you have to do a lot of training before the cruises? Do you have to train the staff? Or what, what was your position there? I mean, I had to come up with the menus, the recipes. How, how, how not far necessarily in the menus. Um, I was months of working on these, these recipes and trying to actually come up with a different, I mean, there's a different consomme every day. There were three different soups every day, a potage, a chilled soup, and a consomme. You come up with 14 different consommes. <laughs> Like by, by day eight, you're really scraping the bottom of the barrel for like what you can use, not just, you don't just have the world of ingredients at your fingertips. You have like, this is what we buy, you know, make dishes. So there were a lot of things that, that they changed just for the reason of saying it changed, you know, of, it's going to, we're going to add green beans today instead of carrots and call it something different. Would you try the dishes out at Oriole or Alva? Or yeah, because I had to photograph them. So I'd make them, kind of mock them up, photograph them for the recipe, and then send them along for them to approve or something like that, or work into their schedule. Would you say that that was an enjoyable experience? I, was, I learned a lot, for yeah. sure. Um, enjoyable. <laughs> well, I mean, like it wasn't, I mean, you did learn. It was a I mean, really it's a fun different experience. It was a really fun, it was a really fun experience. I mean, the being coming back all sickly was, I think some of those times I was on for six weeks. Yeah. You like, were on, I remember you were on for long stretches and you came back to look at different person. Well, the menu's changing every day, which means if the menu's changing tomorrow and then the next day and then the next day, you're always kind of working two days. Like today's menu, you're not just working on today's menu, you're working on today's menu and tomorrow's menu, and the day after that's menu, like prepping it up. So your brain has to do these like, this mental Rubik's Cube stuff that doesn't always, that's very hard to stay on top of. It must have been very, it must have helped you in terms of the way you think in terms of organization. It had to have. Yeah, I think it, just kind of reflecting on it, it made me think about how, the, it doesn't, you don't always need it all, it's too much organization at a certain point. I felt like it, people are always adding stuff and never taking away something. Um, when people are just happy eating roast chicken every night, right. you know, like you just do things very well instead of doing them differently, just do them well. And that would be a better experience. Was the, was the, but the ordering was more like buffet style, right? Or was it like, no, it was no buffet. It was like fine dining. Holy shit. So, so there's like a fine dining restaurant. And then there was a more of a casual cafe restaurant right. that we didn't do the menus for. They just had that thing on. Kind of, it was like steak night one night. I, I can't remember. It was like themed night, Italian night one night, 
German night the next night, more of that kind of a thing. So, so people would go up there if they wanted that. How did, were the, where were the, most of the staff from? They were all European. All the, um, like the, the chef de part, all the, the chef de partie, it's like the- The officers. Right, the, the people in charge of the stations were all from Europe, but all the staff, all the kind of consistent staff was Filipino, all the prep cooks were wow. Filipino. And they'd be on for like a year. A year? Yeah, easy. There was a story about somebody who'd, like his whatever error happened and he'd be on for like three years until he asked <laughs> to go home. Like nobody realized he hadn't been home in three years. Is that true? Yeah. I, I'm making up the three years. It could have been five. Who knows? Oh my God. Yeah. And he was just like too, what, sheepish to say anything? Yeah. Am I going to go back? Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> it's like indentured servitude. But I mean, it's, you make good money. Was it really good money for those guys? I don't know exactly how much they made, but the things you can't spend any money. And since you're spending your time in international oh, waters, right. you're not paying taxes. Right, right, right. So, and they're not leaving the ship. The cooks aren't leaving the ship to hang out. They're not getting days off. No, I mean, you'd, you'd be able to go out after your shift. If you're in, in port, right. you could go and do a little something for a few hours. People just went and bought phone cards and called home, basically. Right. And, or Jesus ate at a restaurant Christ, can you imagine? Like they, all they did was buy phone cards to call home? <laughs> yeah. That's sad. But you get a few hours to go out. Plus... You think you're going to see the world, but if you're on a line that's going from uh, Alexandria to, to Lisbon, for example, on 14 days back and forth, it's just going back and forth. You spend six months doing that. <laughs> you don't end up getting off anymore because you've been there 50 times. Will you tell me the story of the pirates? You had pirates at one point. I didn't have the pirates, but the pirates were on the sh like attacked the ship Immediately after, I, I'd gotten off the cruise in Egypt, and that cruise ship got it got almost was uh, trying to be overrun by pirates at one time. So what happened? Didn't you say they had? That's the first time you, I remember you told me they had like this sound weapon. Yeah, they do. They have this big. It looks like a massive bass drum on the back that they can point at things, and it, like, it's supposed to disrupt their eardrums or something. Um, but they were able to outrun the the pirates who lobbed some grenades at the. Uh, at the, uh, I remember you said that. Isn't that I think, crazy? I think you said that. I think, as, if I remember, you said there was like a rocket launcher, and then it like. I think it was, was a grenade a dud. launcher. Was a grenade launcher was like yeah. a dud. Like it like bounced off the thing, and Who nothing knows? happened. I mean, it's, um, thankfully, it was a maybe it's because it's a smaller ship. They were able to outrun these guys or something. I don't know. Damn. Yeah. Okay. We covered. We covered. This is the beginning. This is. It. We're gonna have Tony back. We could talk about. Alvo, we could talk about other stuff. I want to get into the restaurant world, if you want to, if there's something you want to go into. We were talking about the, the passports, the vaccine passports. Restaurants are now um, having, this is the hardest, one of the hardest parts in the restaurant world, don't you think? Which, right now, just being in, in the last year and a half through the pandemic, it's completely disrupted the concept of Restaurant. They keep opening. I'm like, okay, go for it. Why do you think that is? That's a good question. I, I feel like there's still a lot of opportunity out there um, for restaurants. Um, obviously, when we're talking about New York City here, right? Okay. It's a part of the fabric of society. It's like restaurants do well. There's a huge takeout operations now that are doing very well, that that's all they do. The ghost kitchens and things like that. Um, 
I had this theory this morning. I don't know. <laughs> when, I, when I was thinking about you coming here, and I knew we were doing, actually, we were actually here Thursdays at Tony's when we talk business, but we've been trying to get him on this, get on the full blast for a while. I, I tend to think about the history of Americans um, in regards to our behavior, but also be, everything. And I feel like if you look at France, if you look at European countries or even most other countries that have such a, a, a bigger history of culinary tradition, France, I usually use France because you can get the same whatever, bouillon base they've been making for 200 years or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. all these dishes come from the same place, mm -hmm. the same recipes passing generations and generations. Because the United States is a fairly young country and there's, there's no true, if you go to culinary school, they'll tell you the only true indigenous food in the United States is Cajun food. Which is, you could make the point that it's just like Spanish and Caribbean and, and African and you know Acadian and stuff like that. But there is no tradition of culinary, culinary tradition in this country. I believe that the baby boomer generation is the, the reason why I blame the baby boomer generation for everything. Actually, I blame the greatest generation for everything. I feel like the greatest generation after World War II got this incredible wealth and it was like somebody who's never had money winning the lotto. And they don't know how to keep the money, they don't know how to keep the wealth, they don't know how to train their kids to have wealth, they don't know how to train their kids how to cook, they don't know how to train their kids to stay wealthy, passing along generational wealth. And you get these series and series of generations that are more and more entitled. Getting back to the restaurant industry, I feel like the biggest boom that happened in the United States was the Food Network started and people who never knew how to cook. They never had uh, uh, any history of passing down generations upon generations of food. They had supermarkets were created because, you know, all this, you know, canned foods and frozen foods and prepared foods. They were always giving people the opportunity to go to work and not have to cook. You didn't have to have this, this, this ability to know how to cook. You had, you know, with Julia Childs and all these guys doing all these TV shows and stuff like that. All of a sudden people were learning how to cook. The restaurants has, be, has, has become this surrogate parent. And instead of, you know, Europe, you have the cafe life where it's like, you know, it's a different kind of lifestyle than the United States. The United States is so, we have no, we have no history of cuisine and we just want more. I feel like the restaurant industry has become bigger and bigger in this country for that reason. It's because we're the, like the, we're like the uncle that gives the kids the candy when they're not supposed to have the candy. Does that make sense or am I going crazy? No, I mean, it makes elements of sense. I'll take elements. Yeah, it takes, it takes elements of sense. Because there, we, our version of going out to eat is different than Europeans going out to eat. The, like, I'm not talking about going to high-end restaurants. I'm talking about if you go to the cafe lifestyle, cafe lifestyle will never happen in the United States. Yeah. People don't want to sit at a restaurant, eat the same food that they're used to, and watch people. Well, they there's been a lot new. of kind of corporate... Um, I think that what you touched upon was the, it's a very young country. It didn't have these kind of agrarian um, histories to build their food uh, habits upon, right? There's not, like in France, the same farmers bringing in white asparagus who's been bringing in asparagus for the past 10 generations. Right. And it's just it be kind of gets woven into the fabric of their culture. Right. Whereas here we're kind of starting from scratch and business was more the driver of culture, right? Like what was that story about like McDonald's and gasoline or something like that, like wanting people to drive? I, I can't quite remember it exactly, but there was something about 
Oh, I have a better one. Okay, so the good. oil companies destroyed all the, or they bought up and closed most of the rail companies in all these cities. You know that? No. Like in LA and a bunch of other cities, there were all these, you could get on the, the rail car and go to work or go shopping or do whatever was part of the city. Yeah. But the oil companies bought them all up and closed them down, specifically for the reason it closed them down, so that people would buy cars, buy gasoline, and they would, you know, make their petroleum right. based thing go around. So there's been a lot of um, uh, forcing functions that had nothing just to do with culture, but that had to do with business right. in the States. And I think that that's probably uh, something going on there also that kind of can apply to how the food culture develop, develops outside yeah. of the cafe culture of, or the restaurant culture of these other countries. I, 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 I'm stupefied at how many restaurants I'm growing up in New York City there was when I was a kid there were an explosion of Chinese food restaurants mm -hmm. in New York for takeout to the point where we could tell nowadays it's not the same you could have a place that specializes in Szechuan food you had a place that specialized in Hunan food and they were all within the three block. You know, different, these guys are known for the dim sum, these guys are known for the, it was all takeout and it was all very specific. Mm. And it got to the point where, especially in the 80s, these restaurants would open up and open up and open up and open up. And it's, it's like, it created this wonderful environment of people you know, tasting stuff and seeing stuff. But it was like, when stuff like September 11th happened or stuff like the pandemics happened, it, they, they, they just, they never created a sustainable business model, it seems. What do you mean? The the Chinese places? No, any restaurants. I was going to mention the Chinese. Like now, takeout is the, it's like the best new idea that anybody have. What if we just have a restaurant that just does takeout? As if it's never happened before in That's the, I mean, that is the number one. I mean, that is the number one business out of the pandemic. Yeah. Is, has been takeout. I mean, takeouts, I mean, I don't think, I mean, I don't mean to say it, but I don't think Chinese food places did as well as others. I think there was a lot of real problems in regards to people, feel, how they felt about eating Chinese food. Man, could have gotten some good deals. Could have gotten some good deals. Could have gotten some good deals. I, I, I just, I fast, I'm fascinated by how you feel where, you know, when the pandemic hit, the crazy part to me is, is all these restaurants did everything they could to keep the doors open, figuring out ways in which to stay open. There was just like, they were being murdered with rules and regulations and you know, people can't, how many people can come in? 50% occupancy and you know, these restaurants are so, we talk about restaurants often, mm -hmm. you know. The fact that there's, you're, you're handicapping these businesses when they're already, they were handicapped before the pandemic. Yeah. You know, I just, when the pandemic kinda sorta stops, now the biggest problem isn't people coming in. It's the fact that restaurants can't, they can't keep people working. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think we're seeing a lot of things happen now, but staffing is one of the big issues that I hear about the most right now. And they're at, restaurants are offering kind of crazy signing bonuses for like really? dishwashers and really? servers, like 1200 bucks or, you know, making up the numbers, but it's substantial signing bonuses for restaurants in New York. Um, I, I think that it's a combination of people just left. No one's hanging out for their server job for a year of right. in New York City paying 3500 bucks a month in rent or whatever they have to do. They're, they're gone. They're, they're not there anymore. And I think they'd be silly to come back until it's all kind of right. figured out, right? Right. Um, so there was that. 
but then also I, you know, kind of this uh, restaurant worker mentality. It's go go go. If you have two days off, you're like it's like a luxury event, um, and then all of a sudden you're confronted with having weeks off, and I think it makes you reevaluate. Right what you were doing and why you were doing it. But also there's the idea of, you know, not only getting, um, not only getting, uh, unemployment, a lot of guys are getting unemployment. They're also getting stimulus checks. Mm -hmm. Some of the restaurants were getting uh, PPE, PPP loans, but there was a lot of people. And now the big problem is a lot of people don't want to come back to work because it's cheaper to stay home. It's also, I mean, I could, I could see that that line being drawn more clearly if it wasn't the restaurant business. The restaurant business also happens to be 65 hours of your week, you know, right. for kind of a salaried sous chef type or AGM type of a thing. It's it's all encompassing. So it's not just about the money. It's also like, do I want to go back into that environment right. where I'm working six days a week and somebody's calling out sick and that we'd already shorthanded and we're dealing with mask updates and now we're checking people's phones for passports, like you're jumping back into a situation that might not be comfortable for a lot of people. The, the mask mandate thing, I mean, not the, 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 this, you know, one of the interesting things is, unfortunately, everything has become political. Mm -hmm. the, the restaurant thing has become political in this manner that just seems, it, it, this is strange. All right, here's an example. Uh, Mark Vetri. We know him, um, one of the best chefs in the United States, considered probably one of the top uh, Italian food restaurants in the For United sure. States, Absolutely. and definitely in Philly. Um, he's, uh, he's been one of these guys who was at the forefront of, I will comply with whatever the CDC wants me to do. He made his beautiful restaurant. He, made, he bought a shit ton of plastic, or plastic and plexiglass he made he made partitions he made clear partitions at the bar he made clear partitions at the restaurants he did everything to to be uh, as compliant as possible and he had a lot of there was a lot of criticism from both sides in terms of you know you shouldn't be open or you should be open but we don't need this blah, blah, blah. he really straddled the fence in terms of what was you know he, in in, Phil, in the Philly food scene he was considered relatively controversial on both sides huh. I never really caught that yeah, well, I mean, he. There were people who, you know, people felt like he should be closed, and he really wanted to stay open. He felt, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a strong guy. Mm -hmm. And plus, you have a business; it's your yeah, livelihood. <laughs> he's got a business. He's got a. He's got all these businesses. You got to keep these places open. Yeah. And I remember hearing him say he was listening to the, you know, the governor was saying this, and the mayor was saying that, and they were constantly changing the goalposts in terms of the re reasonings behind everything. And, I remember after he wrote, he wrote something where he said that if I had known I was going to deal with all this bullshit in the beginning, I would have closed down months ago. But he, it got to the point where he had to stay open. He recently posted this voicemail on his Instagram. Go to Mark Vetri on Instagram. He recently posted this picture, this video of him pointing his camera at the phone, and it was somebody who left a message on the voicemail of the restaurant. Similar to what I was saying that at 9-11, this woman said, I know that there's this, you know, these, the towers fell, but I, you better honor my reservation on, you know, September 11th. So somebody left him a voicemail message saying, I, you, I'll never eat in your restaurant and these vaccine passports are, fuck you, shove them up your ass and you're a piece of shit. And it was this long, and it was an older guy. It wasn't like a young dude saying, you know, Baba Booey, you mm -hmm. know, Howard Stern's penis. It was like a guy saying, you know, 
I hope your restaurant fails and I hope your, I hope your, uh, you know, whatever turns off like a spigot and fuck you and shove it up your ass. It was this long deranged message. I've seen other restaurants who, for some reason, they feel the need to go on Instagram and post, you know, this like flag declaration that, you know, only, uh, you know, uh, vaccinated cards will be permitted. And you see the same comments. You know, some people are like, all right, awesome. And people are like, I hope you go out of business. Fuck you. Don't tell me what to do. Mm -hmm. I'm fascinated by how the restaurant business is the whipping boy of society. Me too. You I'm know, fascinated by that. I mean, even, uh, you know, the a lot of the the reports that I read about where people were actually even contacting, right. contra contracting, right. whatever it is called today. Um it wasn't happening in the restaurants. It was right. happening at home. I mean, restaurants, I even remember having a few conversations with my non-restaurant friends. They were scared to go in a restaurant. I'm like, that's the cleanest place you're ever going to go. Right. Especially now. Right. They're wiping everything down. Wearing the masks. kitchen's wearing gloves for everything already. It's a very pristine environment, you know? So I don't know why it got this... Uh, this feeling of like it's everyone's just crowding together like um, in a mosh pit, you know. Well, but the, it's the trust of the. It's it, it, to me, especially with Mark, you know, he he had made the point that like I'm protecting my, and he would do videos where his dudes were wearing masks and he, they were trying to taste the food while they're cooking and pull the mask down, taste the food. They were being super super careful, and he says I need to make sure that I'm protecting my staff, mm -hmm. and that was what a lot of people were saying. For some reason, for some reason, there is, you know, and, and not to mention, you know, unfortunately, I don't necessarily think this was the right tone, but um, the president uh, Biden had said, you know, to some guy at a town hall meeting, well, if you want to get people to come back to the restaurants, maybe you should raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. And there was a lot of cheering and everything like that, but at the same time, and I've seen this on Instagram and Facebook, mostly Facebook, and people would say, well, you need to raise the, raise the, uh, the, the wage to get people to come back. Well, you gotta pay more for that chicken breast. I was just about to say, yeah. those people better keep that same energy when they go out to eat. And don't be mad when your you know, $10 hamburger is $25. Yeah. There, there's this, it's a strange situation that you have to be in the restaurant business. It's now. definitely in a, like a little bit of a flux. You know, um, because they were working so hard to make so little money before. Right, right. And I think that that opened up a lot of, you take the time to reflect. You're not just go, go, going every day. What has to happen? What didn't show up? What's broken today? You know, you tend to just get in this cycle of Bad this is just happening. happening yeah. or, this is just happening. It's like, this is life and it's a passion and you're doing it because you love it and you don't make a lot of money, but that's the price you pay for, you know, right. to work in a passionate environment. But eventually it is a business, right? Right. And when you take a step back and you have to, you take a few of the tables out of the restaurant, there goes your entire profit margin. Huge. You, you can't 50 take one table 50% capacity? 50%? What are you supposed to, what if you, what if you can't get 50% capacity to begin with? Right. <laughs> you know, I remember Alva, we could do the maximum we could do. I remember we could do 90 for dinner. Right. And we never did 90 for dinner. Right. If I we mean, had, if we had maxed out at 45, it would have been a problem. Well, it's, it's funny that the people making the rules or whatever you think about 50% capacity, that's okay because of this, but people still want to eat between seven and nine. That's it. Right. So 50% capacity doesn't mean that all the other people go out to eat at 11. It's like, you're just, you're cutting the business in half at the minimum. 
One of the things that interests me that you and I talk about, and I know we're banging around, but I mean, you know, like at the same time you're coming back, you come here on Thursdays, we'll have you back. One of the things that you and I have said, and this is something that's, you know, now that you're with me, we've been, you've been with, you've been a fader not, with Fader and I've one of the owners for well, five years, something like that, something, something like that. We now deal with not only makers, but we deal with a lot of cooks, and we see the similarity between chefs and cooks and these makers. And there's one thing that you once said to me, we were talking about, you know, a young chef, you know, who starts a restaurant or, or something like this, is there's a similarity between, uh, you know, a hot knife maker, hot, there's, there's definitely like a similarity. One of the things you said, which I thought was so great, was the problem with a lot of these cooks that become chefs is talent alone is not a business plan. Mm. You remember that? That was pre-stroke. I don't remember that. Pre-stroke. All right. You want to talk about that? I <laughs> no, don't know what I'm talking no, about I that. Don't. But that was something that that was something that um, talent is not a business. Oh, yeah, I talent, talent is not a business plan. Right. And what it was, what it was, is it was the concept that creative people being creative isn't enough. One of the reasons why I asked to be my business partner is because while you were the you were it, there was no list. When I decided to become a knife maker, I had to tell my wife. She was going to look at me, my, you know, roll her eyes saying, oh, you're just going to fuck around like you were. With, not fuck around, but like you weren't good at business as a sculptor. What makes you think you're going to be good at this? And I said, well, I'm going to find someone. I'm going to find someone to take my, my um, strengthen my, my weaknesses, which, which you clearly have. It seems to me that without some type of structure or, or um, you know, like, a group of people behind this talent, it's impossible to have a business. For any kind of longevity, yeah. And I mean, I see it happen all the time, all the time. You know, people think that a menu is going to carry the day. What carries the day at a restaurant? Uh, it's a multitude of things, but invariably it has to be a business that makes sense financially. Right. Because you're going to get into trouble, you're going to have bad months. It, there's, It's so much of a... We're gonna win some awards, and we're gonna our food is gonna be so right. good. We're gonna win some awards, and then we're gonna you know be able to make money. It's that kind of a thing, but it's far too expensive to get to that point. If you ever do get to that point, to call it a business, and I think that a lot of cooks, chefs, owners, chefs who kind of get into that mindset young, and then they maybe they don't get the awards. Maybe they turn forty. 245 and then it has to really like sink in that this thing has to make money right it, it, you can't just bounce around anymore um, it gets real serious real fast I I would think that there's a big similarity between makers who want to start business creative types and this concept that there's this concept in the maker community which is it you ha whatever it takes to you have to have, you have fun. Mm -hmm. Everything has to. If you don't like doing what you're doing, don't do it. Or you know, being fun, being fun is more important than um, being fu it being fun is more important than anything else. Like if you're not enjoying what you're doing all the time, it's nice for things to start out that way. Um, but you know, it, it, there, I think it, that any good business has to come from that kind of a place right. where it's enjoyable and you like doing it. It's, it's very creative outlet and it has, it has elements of your personality into it. Right. But I, I don't think that can carry the day when you have to pay rent yeah. and who knows. I think it'd be crazy getting into the restaurant business now. I mean, restaurants are still opening up like crazy though. All right. 
Now we're gonna go into rapid fire. Rapid. Rapid fire. You now have, I'm giving you an amount of money to open up a restaurant to succeed. I, and Seed I have money. to open a restaurant? Uh, food service. Okay. Food service. Here's the seed money to open the food service business that you feel is going to take off. Oh, P.S. At some point, you and I have to talk about the fact that you and I came up with an idea back like 20 years ago where we would open up a grocery store. The larder. The larder. I don't remember what we called it. The larder. It was the larder. We were going to open up a restaurant, but it was going to be a grocery store where we made everything in the grocery store. Mm -hmm. And then you would take away the distribution the distribution like the ketchup and the, we were gonna up a restaurant it was gonna be called the grocery store so larder and we're gonna and and then I think gourmet garage did that I think all those motherfuckers did it and I think I think it was stolen from us that was our original <laughs> idea that and the noodle loom remember the noodle loom? the noodle that was your thing yeah the noodle loom was a, 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 a machine that would weave pasta so you could have pasta as street food the noodle loom all right I'm giving you seed money I don't don't, don't ask me how much I'm giving you seed money to start a, a food service business that's going to succeed. The seed money is the only batch, the only seed money. There's no like, you know, coming back. What is the business? And there's no do? pandemic. Uh, we can, could it be a little bit this is, No, this is now time. This is, the pandemic's over, but the pandemic happened. This is not the golden age of restaurants. This is now, present day. It happened. It's never going to happen again? Uh, you never know. You never know. Okay. Um, I'm going to pretend it never happened. Okay, pretend it never okay. happened. So, well, that's kind of an easy question for me because I've always wanted to have this. I grew up in Reno. Right. Obviously, we went over that. And there were a lot of Basque people there. Oh. There was a lot of sheep herding around there. Really? Yeah, at one time. Okay. And they left a few Basque restaurants around there. Right. Which, more than the food, which was obviously great, but it was the concept of very few things on the menu in fact it was a set menu every night yeah a different menu yeah uh, i think every week or it was the same few items forever right and then they'd they'd uh fold in different entrees okay kind of a thing okay but that was it it was a simple you go there you eat dinner it's the same salad it's the same beans it's the same sides and then there'd be like a special chicken of the okay. day or something like that okay that would be the concept that i'd want to go open dining in yeah dining in but there's just tables communal tables i guess that's okay. gonna have to go by the wayside okay. but um it was a very easy place to order to eat and to work in because one one waiter could run the whole room really because it's like what do you have and you're gonna have the chicken or they're gonna have the beef or you're gonna oh, have yeah. lamb boom no boom, boom that's it there's no choices there's a very few amount of choices same sides it's all the same you sit down you get a salad, you get like oxtail was one of the things that they, they would have. Um, a plate of french fries, whatever kind of soup they were making that week. Um, I think there's another thing or two in there, but then right. you'd get your entree, which is kind of served family style, you yeah. know? So if one person got the leg of lamb, the other person got the steak, you'd, right, you'd right, just right, be there, right, right, right. like Chinese food style in yeah, a way. Yeah. Um, and it was just such a, it always just stuck with me about what a simple, how pleasant it was yeah. to not go through the whole rigmarole of Sit down, get your menu, decide what you want, right. get the way. It's like, I don't need this to be two hours of my life. Too much customization. Too much back and forth. Yeah. You like know? the knife business. You know, I'm just hungry. I'm just, I'm just, <laughs> I don't need to have an experience every time I go out to eat. And I, I think that there's, could be something that's in between like 
a diner and more of a fine dining sit down restaurant because when you when you make the the when you have fewer choices you can make better food right with fewer resources do you so that that's your that's your i would love to cook there i would love to eat there i would love to hang out at the bar it was just i, I it made sense to me all around it's always made sense to do that kind of a thing What's instead the of have this the, the name of Enrino? No, the name of your restaurant. Oh. Um, Something with a T and an X in it. <laughs> <laughs> Some Catalonian TX palatal. I, like I had a name, but it's, it's going back so far. It's deep in the bag by now. <laughs> I can't, the other one was Octopi. That's a recent one. It's a pizza place that has eight different slices pushed together. That's a fucking good idea. So you but just then, make but eight But then it's like a pizzas. taster. You just make eight pizzas. And then you su and shuffle them around. Then you cut each into eight pieces, shuffle them around, and then that's what you get. So there's no more choices. You know what I mean? You just get an octopi. Wow. Does anyone do that? I haven't ever seen that. That's a fucking good idea. You like that? But then, but then maybe there might be a dud in there. There might be like olive and... Somebody will eat it. Somebody, somebody will eat it. Yeah. yeah, I don't... It doesn't have to be crazy flavors. Not to put like... You octopi. Know, octopi. I'm not mad about that. Yeah. I'm not... But I... I would probably like have three favorites in there, and then the rest of them. You, Listen, gotta... you could get like just the one pie if you oh, wanted yeah, to. Yeah, there's yeah, just yeah, there's yeah. only eight is the thing. There's eight, and you could get a mixed up one that's the octo pie. That'd Love be like it. the signature, right? And you and can then make maybe, it easy. And maybe some specials you, in there you don't know about. You gotta take a pizza, dinner with four people, get an octo pie. Octo pie, easy peasy. Octo pie. Yeah. Okay. Next question. This is out of the. This is uh, rapid fire. Yeah, rapid fire. We're, 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 we're doing good. You and Xavier had on Overseasoned a question you'd ask, where you would ask your guests, what is the sandwich that best describes you? What's your sandwich? Well, it was a spice. Mm -hmm. We'll get to the spice too. Name me your sandwich of sandwiches. The sandwich of sandwiches, you know, I hate being such a simple guy, but the, I just had a jambon bar the other oh, day. Dude. It's just a perfect sandwich. I lived on it when I was in France. I lived off those. They're so Sandwich good. Sandwich de jambon. Oh my god! It, whether it has cornichon on it or not, I think just the fact that there's butter, butter, a ham. good ha a good ham, and just like perfect French bread. I mean, there's nothing better. You're saying that that's the ultimate sandwich of sandwiches. Yes, but as far as a branded sandwich goes, I would have to say the Pub and Sub in Reno. It's been exactly the same for What's my entire life. It's just a little restaurant. It's just a little like college pizza wings sub sandwich sub shop. But it's been exactly the same for my entire life. And I just think it's really amazing that they pulled that off. You're also spent a lot of time in Philly. Yeah. What's your opinion between cheesesteaks or roast pork sandwiches? Roast pork sandwich all the way. Tell me what's the best roast pork sandwich. Denick's? I mean, that's the that was they served Denick's in the Reading Terminal, which was close to where I lived when I lived there. So right. that's an easy so one. So what's in, what's in a pork a roast pork sandwich? Roast pork, um, Provi. And then they'll put greens on it if you want. What kind of greens? Broccoli, broccoli rabe? Yeah, broccoli rabe. <laughs> broccoli rabe. I think there were a few different choices. You can get uh, aged provy or like regular provy. You know, there was a few different things in there, but Do you it was think a great provolone sandwich. is a maligned cheese? I like the aged one because there's actually some flavor. Right. Because otherwise, there's nothing, to, there's nothing really, there's nothing to write home about. Name the spice. This is another overseas question. Name the spice that best describes you. The 
best describes me? Is that what it was? Isn't that the question? I mean, yeah, but I don't remember if I answered this before on that, you know. Well, mine was, I use, Carl Ruiz used to refer to uh, smoked paprika is, white trash. is a white trash. Smoked paprika was white trash. Fuck, what did he say? White trash. What do you put in paella with this goddamn? The saffron. White trash saffron. Yeah. He called smoked paprika white trash saffron. <laughs> I That's get what with I that. that was a fucking great. Oh, I'm using a lot of spice mixes these days. Yeah. Part of it's because a little bit of laziness, right. and partly because there's just amazing spice mixes out there. I just got this harissa spice mix. It, it, it's a little confusing because it's just a dry spice mix that I've been using a lot. Um, and also this like four or five pepper mix. I don't have a good answer for you. That's fine. But um, I guess I've just been using a lot more of uh, uh, put together things, right? You shake a little on, you're done. You roast it, finished, eat it, I'm a huge watch fan, TV, go to bed. Huge fan of mixed spices. Yeah. I actually am embarrassed to say, not embarrassed to say, it's good. There's this guy on Instagram. His name is Official Cracker. He's this like, I think he's like a personality on TikTok. He's like this guy down south. I think it's official crack. Official crack. He's this. He's this Cajun guy. He wears a hat. And he clearly has a wig underneath, and he has like these glasses, and he talk, and he talks big about you know. You can put it put it on a cracker, and he does these videos. You, you where follow the, this guy? I follow this guy. It's embarrassing. It is embarrassing. Yeah. But he has this stuff his family made. It's called Cajun Two Step. And I watched him make the giant crab boils and I watched him boil the shrimp and I watched him cook the steak and I watched him slap this and and if when you wait when it's time to wait you gotta hydrate and then he has this beer bong that he sucks down even in the, in the middle of everything so I ended up buying two things of the I, and I was like he was selling the Texas you know the Cajun two steps I'm like fuck it I bought two jars of it and I looked at the ingredients recipe the ingredients of it's like it salt paprika go ahead granulated garlic go ahead <laughs> What are uh, we missing? What's the second one? The second ingredient that you're very much missing? MSG. MSG. <laughs> it's like it's like flavored accent. Yeah. It's like flavored accent. And there's lemon. Do they sell that anymore? Oh yeah, I bought some accent. Okay. Oh, MSG is having such a courageous return. Uh, return thanks to David Chang. Really? David Chang did this video. He did one of his shows where he got all these people in the restaurant and said. Do you like MSG? And they say, oh no, I'm allergic to MSG and it makes me inflated and it makes my ankles fat and it makes my throat close. And he made them try all this stuff. And they're like, oh, this is very delicious. Oh, this is very delicious. What's in it? He goes, fucking MSG. MSG is, you've, we've created this, like, I think he's made this point where it's some, some sort of racial thing where MSG is much maligned. But so we get this. I remember thing. the like, restaurant, like Chinese food restaurants when I was growing up had like no MSG, yeah. neon signs in the window. Right. Like right. neon signs. But they were flying. They were all well, well, it's, it's just from seaweed, right? Well, I mean, from what I understand, MSG was monosodium glutamate came from certain things and naturally occurred when you fermented soybeans. And then these Japanese scientists figured out a way to make that umami flavor, and that's what they created MSG. Huh. MSG is MSG is the concoction that that is to is to is to fabricate the natural uh, that umami flavor, which is this unbelievable flavor that you get in steaks and tomatoes, and that something you can't. It's like deliciousness, mm -hmm. but that's what MSG is, and you can get it in so soy sauce. I mean, soy sauce is you know fucking chock filled with it. Right. But so I got this fucking Cajun two-step and it was just like, look at the greens. I'm like, of 
course it's delicious. I wouldn't have ever think that. I, I wouldn't have guessed that that's like an ingredient in spice. Oh yeah, well, I'm, you know, thank God. You, from what I understand. I'm surprised they haven't rebranded it under some different name. I guess they call it umami now, right? So they umami Well, flavor. you can have, I mean, it can be, if you say, it says natural spices, that can be MSG too. Ah. Like company, like I get, I hate to say this, I'm embarrassed to say this, but one of the best mixed spices, Emerald's Essence, that fucking shit in that the sounds. supermarket. It's fucking delicious. It's a great spice rub, and it's he's much I mean, maligned. I'm the same with. I mean, I just I didn't want to mention it because I'm just. Go ahead. I'm bringing it up all the time, but Montreal seasoning. Montreal. Montreal seasoning's great. Yeah, I use it all the time. I used it last night. Paul Prudhomme too. Paul Prudhomme makes good spice mixes. Mm -hmm. Look, it, it's fine. But I I, I am I'm, I'm amazed at like spices fascinate me. Spices fascinate me. Smoked paprika, we can't get enough of. Yeah, boy, can't get enough of it. What do you What do you make it with? I use it. I use basically the spices I use. Like usually, we're grilling shrimp, right. grilled shrimp, or we're or when I, I even use it when I smoke salmon. I put. Um, I like. I use the Cajun two step because I know that I'm getting the fucking MSG in there. I know it's going to be. You do. Good. You used to do a lot of smoked salmon, right? With the brown sugar. Now and all I that. do it all the time. I do it every do. It, I do a standing order on um, on Saturday, Sunday. Just got a standing order. Oh yeah, Hillary. They, we, you, we. It's two meals. It's two meals for us. Do you do a hot smoked salmon? Hot smoked salmon. So let's look, let's give a recipe. Why not? Do it. So this is something I learned. Uh, there's a great old cookbook call from Stephen Raiklin. Stephen Raiklin. Yeah. Stephen Raiklin. He's like the king of barbecue, the real king of grilling. Not barbecue, grilling. I mean, maybe barbecue too, but grilling. And he had this hot smoked salmon dish. So basically what you do is you take your salmon, take your skin off. And I learned how to take skin off from you guys, by the way. Hmm. I learned taking the skin off and then taking the bloodline away. I've always now, ever since you guys did that at Alva, I've always made the salmon that way. And then you soak it in for 10 minutes in uh, rum and then you wipe it off and then you make a, a, a salt sugar solution, two parts brown sugar, one part kosher salt, and then whatever seasonings you want. They like white pepper for some reason. I don't know why anyone wants white pepper. And then I would use um, garlic salt and whatever. Whatever else you whatever want. Whatever you have, Old yeah. Bay, got a pile yeah. of Old Bay, I put that in there. And then you cover it, um, you cover it on the bottom and the, the top of it. Uh, you know, put it some on the bottom of the tray, put the salmon down, Put this stuff on top, put it in your refrigerator four hours. That's it, four hours. And then you pull it out. And then you and I used to talk about this. My dad and I used to call when you, when you, when you cure something, you put it out to create a glaze, like a film on it. Pelicle. We used to call it a pelican. Remember, I used to say, I used to call my dad and I used to call it a pelican. And we used to say, yeah, yeah, we're going to make a smoke sandwich. We're going to throw a little pelican. A pelican? What the fuck's a pelican? It's a pelicle. And then you smoke it indirect for, you know, 20 minutes or something. Pellicle's like important because it's that stickiness that the smoke actually sticks to. Right. You know, see, somebody will be smoking something sometimes and I'll just have those kind of streaky, dirty, streaky yeah. kind of. That doesn't happen when you have the nice pellicle because the smoke just sticks to it, yeah. which is an acidic layer which helps preserve it. That's kind of what, what it, so it does have a function also. How long would you leave for a pellicle? I mean, it, it's got to be a few hours in the fridge to, yeah. really, to really make a nice, you know, to make give, it's just got to be sticky. Yeah. I mean, overnight is probably the easiest thing. That's why curing and smoking a salmon is like kind of a two-day process. Give me most of the time. Give me if you're gonna do it for, okay, we're gonna do this a whole side and it's gonna last us a week. You know what I mean? Right. Not two days. It's fine. 
Give me and the listeners a banger recipe that they would ne- that they can anybody can do. That would be delicious. Something easy, simple, something not you know something that would be like you're gonna impress your girlfriend, impress your boyfriend. Something simple that's just gonna be good. Hmm. He's really. Thinking. I didn't realize this would be such a hard question, but so many things come to my mind. Like, what time of the year is it? What's around? Well, what time of the year do you want it to be? Want me to give you a time of the year? Yeah, give me. Okay, give, give me some. It's the fall. It's the fall. Are you thinking braises? Some anybody. I'm, I'm trying to can think do. of some like don't, quick trick. Don't give these motherfuckers who are listening to this a pellicle. They don't need it. They don't. They don't want a pellicle. No pellicles. It's got to be a simple recipe. Simple recipe. No pellicles. No tweezers, something to impress somebody. They're going to listen to this, they're going to go get to the groceries, and then they're going to impress their friends. i tell you what's been go ahead. pretty uh, pretty easy to teach people go ahead. recently. Go ahead. Is spatchcocking a chicken okay. for the grill. Okay. You know what I mean by that? I do, but explain to the listeners. You cut the backbone out. Right. You can use a pair of sturdy scissors or a paring knife. You just set the chicken straight up and down. Right. Upside down. Upside down so their legs are up. Yeah. Okay. Cut out the, the backbone. Right. You don't necessarily have to. You could just cut down one side just to, to cut it in half. Right. Right. Then you open it up. You got to break the rib cage, right? Yeah. You got to break it so it lays flat. Kind of make sure it lays flat. Okay. So you break the rib cage and tuck the wings behind the breast and all that kind of stuff. Okay. Season it up really good. Whatever you're using. On the outside of the skin and the inside? On on the on the underside and the skin side, okay. right? Just get get some yeah. flavor in there. Right. You know, usually I'll squeeze a lemon over it too. Yeah. Let it sit. I like to season in also early in the day, so it has some time to kind of like soak in and do whatever it's gonna. Even in dry spice, it kind of some flavors are going back and forth there. Right. And I will just use a Weber. Right. Put all the coals on one side. Right. I cook the chicken skin side up the whole way. The whole way. The whole way. Because the coals Love are all it. on one side. Love it. Get those going. Put the chicken on the other side. Right. Indirect. Totally indirect. Put the lid on with the little holes on top. Yeah. Open all the way. Open all the way. But the lid's not on all the way. Oh. You get to keep it cocked off a little bit. You know? Spatch cocked off. Spatch cocked off. Um, towards, this is getting really technical. Go ahead. But I don't, I pull the lid off just a bit. So it's still sitting on top. Question, not, real quick. Yeah. What? What's facing the fire? Is it the legs? The legs. The legs are the legs. facing the closest to the fire. Yeah, you want okay. the legs facing the fire. Okay. Um, and I pull the, the the top of the Weber off just a little bit so it gets extra airflow there. Oh, so there's convection coming from where the breast side is up and in. Yeah. Because you want it to. Tony, yeah. It's going to. Because you don't. Once you start messing around the chicken, the skin breaks, the leg falls off. You right. know, you want it to just sit there and go. It's also. You just want to put it there and go do something else for. 45 minutes. So you leave it with, you leave it untouched for 45 minutes. Yeah. About that. 35 to 45. You're not opening up and checking I'll it. peek in every once in a while just to make sure that it's not, there's not too many coals and it's getting too hot or, you know, just to kind of tweak it a little bit, how but I'm not know, touching the chicken. How do you know it's done? Um, one is the time involved, right. like 45 minutes if it's hot. You're talking about a four pound bird. Yeah. Okay. Three to four. Okay. Kind of a thing. And you also see the skin will start to kind of blister a little bit. Yeah. It'll crack. You'll also see like, you'll get some bubbling up like in the joints of okay. the knee. You'll kind of, if it's bubbling on the top, it means it's hot all the way through. Okay. Right. And then I'll take the lid off. By that time, sometimes the coals are died out a little bit. Right. 
and just let it sit there for another 15 minutes. Or you take it off, put a little foil over, just let it sit. It's all, it's all it's bone in me. The, the, the foil. Yeah. Well, there's flies around and shit. Who knows? Um, so you just let it sit. You, it could sit there honestly for an hour and be perfect. Oh, it sails into being done? Yeah, well, it's going to be finished already, but the, it's still going to be juicy. It's, it's cooked. You could eat it, but it's going to be hot as shit. And it's gonna, all the juices are going to go out. Right. I guess my thing with it is it's more of a, a mindless time-saving thing. Like if not everybody's ready for dinner. You know the... I know. You know how everybody know. leaves the second dinner's ready? It's, it's so annoying. Yeah. Um, you, I mean, it's not It's not just my people, right? It's everybody. It's everybody's hey, people. Hey, dinner's ready. Everyone and then goes where are they? Different they go to the bathroom. Yeah. You got to lie to them. You got to tell them it's ready 15 minutes before. That's the move? What else you know are you going to do? Fucking, that's what I'm going to do. I yeah. have to constantly, I have to call up. All right, dinner's girls, ready. time for dinner. Dinner's ready. Damn dinner's it. ready. Start doing it like or before you start. Or it's getting cold. Yeah. I spent all this time. And it's, I think that that's I'm part of the reason I like this chicken because it's all bone in. Yeah. You just cut it right before. It's still steaming a and little people bit. People are impressed. It's impressive. It's, part, well, it's, 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 it's very contained. Do you think it's an easier way to cook than if it was whole? Like the beer can chicken thing? Yeah, I never tried the beer can chicken thing. I think it's, like, it's kind of a gimmick, right? Um, Go ahead. I had a beer can story. I used to have a smoker and I could fit four beer can chickens like you know like like they were like soldiers uh-huh. with their heads you know their, their wings over their heads sitting on the beer can i we used to call it abu Ghraib because when you open the can you see these four guys with their hand these four chickens with their hands up God. with the smoke coming out and it was just like it looked a little bit like they're like inter- it was like an internment camp yeah sounds delicious um <laughs> I think the beer can chicken thing, it's more about, you can buy little wire racks that you put yeah. the chicken. It's not really about the beer. It's about just, the can holds it up, yeah. right? There's no beer flavor that's coming out of those things. It's not Spatchcock chicken, what are you serving with it? You know, I use a ton of uh, um, that adobo rice. What's adobo rice? That, uh, that, uh. That a Goya rice, Spanish, Goya, say, say Spanish, no. I use yellow that, Spanish I rice. I use that so much. I love it so much. It's so good. I have, I have like five family three packs oh or my, five packs. Really? Yeah, I use it a lot. So you do that. Whatever other kind of veg you got, you can do broccoli rob. You can do whatever. You know, it's, it's really simple. Tony Iazzi, unbelievable. You've said it all. Said it all. No reason to come back. We well, we have to do this again because I remember there's some things that we didn't get to. Shit. But that's fine. No, we're gonna have you back. This is awesome. This is a, this is a, this is a real episode of Overseason. I'm taking over You're the taking Overseason. It over. I think maybe when you come on, because when I have Nico come on, you were actually on an old episode of Downward Spiral. I remember that back in the day. Must have been ten years ago. Must have been ten years ago. I have him coming in every so often, uh-huh. and now I'm gonna have you coming on, and we're gonna call it Overseason. Sweet. Fuck you, X. <laughs> You're out, baby. You're out. You're out. The Overseason is coming over here. So go follow. T- I didn't give a shit about it on Instagram, do you? You no. don't care about any of it. No. I I tried. It didn't. Tried. St- it didn't stick. You tried. It yeah. didn't stick. Tony's my guy. Tony's the best. I, I will say this. Don't follow him at all. I don't give a shit about you. <laughs> you don't give a fuck about you. You're sneaking his DMs and don't say a fucking thing. He will cut your heart out. Listen, Tony is my friend. I'm very, 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 very fortunate to have you as my business partner. Not only do I appreciate the things that you say, I not only do I appreciate your suggestions, I listen to everything you say. Don't tell me I don't. 
Except for you had a t-shirt design. You wanted to be red with gold sparkles. I don't know why. I don't know if I can still it. It's on the way. It. It's on the way. It's on the way. But I appreciate not only all the work that you've done and everything you've done for Floyd Fader Knives, but I love our conversations because they're always really funny. True. Like I love talking about our customers and sometimes when they're difficult, we have a lot of laughs. That's true. We do have a lot of laughs here at Fader Knives. Tell the truth. We do. Once a week. Once a week. All right, guys. We got a lot of big shows coming up. Jimmy DeRest is coming in this fall. Leah Arapach. Leah Arapach is going to be on this new Netflix show called Metal Shop Masters. It's coming out the first week of September or the second week of September. She will be on to, we'll talk about it there. Uh, and this is going to be out of order, so I don't know who else is coming up, but I know that Jimmy's coming up, Leah's coming up, and I got a few other guys. Thank you. Go support. Uh, go follow Axe Wax. Get yourself some Axe Wax. Uh, Full Blast 10 gets you 10% off. Go get yourself a new website because yours is not, not cutting it. Uh, akinteractive.com backslash Full Blast for 10% off. All right, guys. We'll see you next week. Thanks again, Tony. Thank you. The Full Blast podcast is proudly sponsored by Axe Wax, an all-natural food-safe wax for coating your handles. It can be used on your axes, your knives, or even on your boots, with the full confidence that Axe Wax is safe and durable. Furthermore, if you use the promo code FULLBLAST10, you will get a special 10% discount on your order. So go to axewax.us and get yourself some of the most luxurious wax for waxing your axe. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.